my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Each episode of Valar Reread is for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests, plural. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches, allowing us to zoom in a bit further on the detail and think more about what's to come. A standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time we see them. That warning has varied based on the chapter. This one, I'd say, is not terribly likely to change. Of course, small changes are always possible. One thing we will talk about is, well, where this chapter was originally placed, because it was moved, which, given that, maybe there will be some small changes. Today's guests to help us dissect and understand and predict this chapter are our great friends, Radio Westeros. How's it going, friends? Good to see you. Hello. Good to hey, see you. going great. <laughs> what has been going on over on the Radio Westeros channel these last few weeks, months? We, we, it hasn't been that long since we had you on, but you know we always like to keep in touch and see what's happening. Mm-hmm. So we're still plowing ahead with our Winds of Winter Primer series. As we're doing here, gearing everyone up for... The next novel that we hope isn't going to be too far away at this point. And we have just done The Reach with Euron and Samuel and Aaron. And we like to complement that with some live streams now and again, where we have guests. We've had Aziz on before. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else, Lady Gwyn, that I've forgotten? No, that's pretty much what we've been up to. Getting, Making our way through and done in the whole of Westeros and we're heading to Essos next. Nice. Yeah. So that's really cool. I know some people probably check you guys out on Saturday and check us out on Sunday and mm-hmm. get a nice uh, weekend full of a song of ice and fire goodness. There we uh, go. All right. <laughs> that's how we do it. That's how we roll over here. And also, mm-hmm. some of y'all also are well familiar with the Isle of Faces podcast. If you're not, you should be checking them out. They're about to launch a new thing after the Winds of Winter stuff is done. They're going to do scraps and screens instead of scraps and scrolls, which is a full Game of Thrones rewatch. They're really getting into the Iron Anniversary spirit of things. So that's a pretty big undertaking. um, And that should be a lot of fun. So check that out. Check him out uh, over there. He's got a new host as well, uh, a a co-host. So lots Mm -hmm. of fun things happening over there. You're going to want to check that out to see what all those announcements are. And I've got a cat pulling on my headphone cord. And check out Nina Friel's goodqueenalley.tumblr.com blog. It's excellent. Lots of great stuff. um, Lots of analysis of current topics that we're on. She's often in tandem with where we're at, but she's got such an active mind uh, that she's got lots of takes on other things too. 
here and there. That's how it is when you're dealing with the Song of Ice and Fire. You just never know where your mind is going to go. There's so many things to think about and talk about. So, yeah, you got to roll with it, right? Live questions, if you want to submit them, you can do so. We're going to answer most of them at the end, uh, which is basically how we've been doing Valar Redis. We go through a chapter, then we take the questions. Uh, it feels a little different here because we have, you know, it's at the end of the episode rather than periodically, but it's still end of the chapter, we take the questions. Each episode of Valar Redis for the Winds of Winter will also start with a history of the chapter itself, a little meta slash chapter history, when it was released and all that, any other details that we have. A little extra stuff here today, but first, a super chat from Here Be Dragons, our good friends over there. Uh, he says, I rarely have time to catch this live, but when I heard Lady Gwyn and Yokoi were going to be on, I knew I just, uh, I knew I had to be here. Thanks to you and the, for the many hours of entertainment you provided, just reclaimed Patreon Hand of the Queen. Shea is the best. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. What are they doing today? They're doing Clone Wars Season 3. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. so... We are unfortunately just behind. We're in season two. Yeah, we're, we, we would have to catch up to watch that. But we are trying to get through Clone Wars. It's pretty cool. It's it's important part of the Star Wars saga. And so that's a great thing that, that Steven and his friends are doing over there on Here Be Dragons. We usually shout them out at the end. It's like a thing every episode. We shout out Here Be Dragons. But here, hey, right at the beginning this time. So yeah, check them out. All right, let's, let's do this meta chapter history real quick. It was released on April 2nd, 2015 on George's website. It was written prior to the release of A Dance of Dragons. It was originally part of A Dance of Dragons. And that's, uh, that's kind of interesting, right? Because it would have been the only Sansa Elaine chapter in A Dance of Dragons. So George was clearly thinking, eh, I got to try to get one in there. But it got, the book got huge. It's the biggest of all the books. So understandably, he decided to move it out. And he announced that on his blog in late 2010. And if I recall correctly, he didn't say which chapter it was, or he didn't say, or maybe he's, we were able to, people were able to figure it out. It was able to be narrowed down pretty easily because like I said, there are no Sansa chapters in there. So if he says he moved a Sansa chapter out, well, it could only be this one. It was the ninth chapter of the 11 Winds of Winter chapters released. So it was one of the last. Only Ariane 2 and The Forsaken came after it. But it was a full release, an officially released chapter on his website, which only about half of these were, which tends to mean it's probably more set. But again, the, the warning still applies that it might change. And you you guys remember something that happened around the time this came out. It's kind of an interesting like uh, fandom discussion uh, and situation around all this. What, yeah, what I can tell you, I can tell you a few things about this chapter's fandom meta. Before the chapter was released, we knew it, of its existence because Elio and Linda of Westeros.org said that they had read the Elaine One Winds of Winter chapter. Ran commented that some fans would find it controversial and that that's all he really said about it. So fans speculated what sort of controversy was in those pages. There was many debates about this. And the conclusion that many people met was that something completely awful was going to happen to Sansa Stark in those chapters. Literally, all we had to go on was this controversial remark. <laughs> so some of the guesses weren't totally surprising. When the chapter did come out, there was little in the way of controversy. And Ran explained he was really being offhand and that he meant that Sansa didn't think of Sandor at all in the chapter and that hardcore Sansans would kind of, kind of find it controversial. So... It shows how easily the fandom can be led astray by extrapolate, 
extrapolating on vague comments and <laughs> I kind of learned a lesson there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know any extreme Sansans who thought it was controversial that she didn't think of Sandor. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we were really involved with the Pond Player project at that time. <laughs> and obviously a lot of Sansans there. Nobody found it controversial. <laughs> it, it, it seemed like the, yeah, it definitely sent the opposite message. Like you said, Yokoi, like some people thought, oh, like controversial, like something like sexual, like, oh, this exactly. is like, because like Mercy yeah. had already come out. So we, that was, uh, that was kind of in that vein of like, whoa, this is, this is like mm-hmm. pretty, pretty, Yeah, you're serious. like, if that came out, then this is controversial? Yeah, like, Exactly. No, yeah. not really. <laughs> yeah. So, no. so that's us. Uh, but, but it's a great point. You're right. It's a, a wonderful example of how sometimes a, f- a few words can really spin us in the wrong direction. <laughs> but, cautionary uh, tale. Yeah. Cautionary <laughs> tale, indeed. Uh, <laughs> cautionary tale for young girls <laughs> or young fans. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but that is also an interesting segue to a topic that we're going to have in this in this uh, chapter in general, which is sexualization of these young women, especially these bastard girls, is a big deal because these noble guys, uh, lords, and I say guys because I mean boys and men, not just the men, uh, are able to convince these women that there's a future for them and when there isn't. And that's the story of Mia Stone, which is basically where the chapter starts, but it's kind of subtle, isn't it? So we'll get into that. But first, we'll have a synopsis. And um, yeah, then we'll go from there. The chapter begins with, like I said, with Mia Stone, straw in her hair and scowling, informing Lord Robert and Sansa Elaine that the Wayne Woods and thus Harry the Heir have been spotted on the road. They are the last to arrive. And with that, the event can begin. The event, conceived by Sansa herself and eagerly accepted by Littlefinger, is a tournament. No ordinary tournament, however, but one where the winners will win not only fame, but the honor of protecting the Lord of the Vale. They will earn the name Winged Knights, named for the legendary hero of the same name who happens to be Lord Robert's favorite, and there will be eight of them. The twist is that they will pledge their devotion and service for three years, unlike the lifetime appointment of the Kingsguard. Pretty big difference. As much as he likes the Winged Knight, Robert does not like Harry the heir. It would be another twist, then, if Harry became one of the Winged Knights. Hmm. Littlefinger says he's not much of a fighter, but he also says he wants Harry to stay after the tourney and give Sansa creepy advice on how to flirt with him so as to entice him to stay. Little Robert would hate Harry even more if he knew about that part because he again declares his love for Elaine and that he wants to marry her. She's become quite adept at handling him in these situations, choosing her words well, but she's also exasperated with having to deal with this every day. However, Everything else about the Gates of the Moon and her current situation is on the positive side. She even thinks... Elaine loved it here. She felt alive again for the first since her father, since Lord Eddard Stark had died. She, she does it better than me, as you all can tell. But as we see in that moment of happiness, there is a lie holding it all together. A fantasy, perhaps. She's Sansa, not Elaine. Her father died, not this Lord Eddard Stark. Here, her father is Littlefinger. Here, they're about to have a tournament, while the rest of the world seems to be at war, dealing with winter, or both, or worse. Elaine goes to look for Lord Baelish. Not knowing where he is, the chapter gives us a look at the proceedings as she heads to a few different places in her search. We see Nestor Royce showing off those tapestries we've all been wondering about for quite some time. Clearly, they haven't been forgotten. She sees men riding at the Quintain, practicing their jousting. There's a variety of sigils present, and she sees Michael Redfort, Mia Stone's lover, and supposedly good enough to be favored to win one of the eight slots. 
She also sees Miranda Royce, who is in need of rescue from unwanted male attention and is thus quite glad to see Elaine. With her conversational help, they escape the Knight of the Lips and the pimply ginger lad together. They see more knights at practice, including Sir Lynn Carbray, who is predictably winning and predictably bragging about it. Few can match him with swords, but Elaine is perhaps his better at words and tweaks him by bringing up a sore subject, his elder brother and his elder brother's new wife, who is newly pregnant. That soon-to-be newborn should soon supplant Lynn as heir to Hart's home, and he's not happy about it. While they're speaking, a mouse sneaks up on Elaine, a mad mouse. That's right, Sir Shadrick, the man who told Brienne he was hunting for Sansa. So this encounter in which he sees his prey face-to-face probably isn't important in the slightest. They run off, literally enjoying themselves in a friendly race to greet the newly arrived Waynewood party led by Lady Anya. The sight of Harry the heir knowing she's meant to marry him as part of the plan to regain Winterfell makes her nervous. She also recalls the lesson of Joffrey said aloud by Olenna that comeliness for all its benefits and appeal is not to be confused with virtue of any kind, kindness in particular. Harry's extremely rude greeting does indeed remind us of Joffrey. Of note as well as the news, though unsurprising, that there is snow in the passes, a fancy tourney with winter near, as if to explain the dark underside of the situation, Elaine at last finds her fake father in the dark underside, well, an underground vault, where he and some other lords are discussing how to best profiteer from the inevitable suffering that will come from the inevitable food shortages that will come when snow all over the passes becomes snow all over, period. With food shortages on the way, it's the perfect time for a 64-course meal. Huh? George gives us another glorious description of it all, capped off with the truest, purest object of Sansa's affection. And best of all, Lord Nestor's cooks prepared a splendid subtlety, a lemon cake in the shape of the giant's lance, 12 feet tall and adorned with an eerie made of sugar. For me, Elaine thought as they wheeled it out. Sweet Robin loved lemon cakes too, but only after she told him that they were her favorites. Mm-hmm. The cake had required every lemon in the veil, but Peter had promised they would send to Dorn for more. They call that a subtlety? <laughs> <laughs> subtle subtlety. that doesn't seem subtle anyway using up a resource for a single party fits the theme pretty well i'm sure it is immediately pointed out who is paying for all this food as well as the fancy gifts given out to the lords and ladies in attendance bribery doesn't work nearly as well when you don't know who the bribes are coming from next comes the dancing though personally i'd have done that before the 64 course meal but hey yeah Elaine is masterful with her wordplay, easily putting Aerie the heir on the defensive, his early ac- earlier acrimony now completely reversed as he begs for her favor, only to be refused. You may not. It is promised to another. She was not sure who as yet, but she knew she would find someone. Yeah. Let's have y'all's reaction to this chapter. We got the Battle of Fire, Battle of Ice, Battle of Blood down there at Old Town or whatever, calling it. We got chaos at the wall, maybe some chaos at King's Landing with Kevin's death. Just, this is just so different, right? It's a really different feel. And that's part of its strength, isn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm just trying to cast my mind back to my original reading. And as I said, there were preconceived notions that this would be a grim and horrific chapter and that perhaps Sansa would be a victim. Having sat through many pages of Sansa's suffering, I'm glad the tone was a lot lighter than I expected. Mm. It's a building chapter. Things are being set up. And as you mentioned, Aziz, there will be war all around in the openings of the Winds of Winter. So a few chapters of slower-paced intricacy 
will help to offset any feeling of war weariness on the part of the reader. We all love action, but hey, you also need dynamics and variance and contrast. I enjoy the chapter. It's full of subtlety. And there are a few moments of humor even. <laughs> I feel Sansa is in a tradi- uh, transition period. And although we are not quite at the payoff stage of her arc yet, there's the growing feeling in the chapter that we are going somewhere with this character, that she is becoming more independent and beginning to be proactive rather than a continual damsel in distress. She has watched and learned for pages and pages, and now she's ready to show us what she can do. It's a little slow in places, and not much action occurs, but I feel like the wheels are in motion for Sansa's Winds of Winter arc, so a successful establishing chapter, I think. Nice, yeah, very well said. And I think, uh, just to add to that, you're right, there's this feeling of, of um, even though they're not, not overt distress, there's some subtle things that point to, yeah, there's some things that could go wrong here. And that's certainly something we'll talk about. So it's kind of maybe uh, with that and with all the fact that they're surrounded by war and winter, it is kind of a calm before the storm situation, kind of, right? Wouldn't you, maybe something like that? Mm, yeah, I, I find that... You know, elements of this chapter are very reminiscent of uh, Renly's tourney at Bitterbridge. Mm. I was reminded of that strongly. Remember when Cat told Randall Tarley, King Rob is boring, my lord, not playing at tourney. (laughs) Someone could definitely show up at some point and tell these bailmen that literally everyone else in Westeros (laughs) is boring while they're just having a tourney and feasts. But, um, you know, they're not quite the Knights of Summer, but Autumn is still lingering in the veil, so maybe they're the Knights of Autumn. Mm, that works, yeah. <laughs> um, at any rate, I, I really I think this chapter has a kind of lovely, sunny feeling to it. You know, that early autumn day, late summer, you know, golden sunshine, everything's, everyone seems to be happy. But there are some darker themes, like you guys were saying, but it's really an outlier to every other Winds of Winter sample chapter. Uh, in that sense. And I think it even stands up against a lot of feast and dance in that regard, too. Mm. We don't get a lot of sunny, happy settings and stuff like that. So uh, I think when I first read it, I really felt like I had been dropped into a fairy tale story. (laughs) Noble knights and fair ladies, the sun, the great feast, the tourney on the horizon. Sansa is in her element and she thinks... I I read that quote. This is the first time she's felt alive since her father... It's a big deal. No, Lord Eddard died, you know, on the surface. It all seems very rosy. Uh, but then we dig deeper and we see that it's definitely not, which is, uh, you know, some things that I'm sure we're going to be discussing. What do you think, Yoko? And, and I agree with Aziz that, it, yeah, it does feel like a calm before the storm. And we can speculate on what sort of storms could occur. But equally, it could just be the sort of calmness required to establish Sansa in the winds of winter and focus on her sort of interior world and set the stage for her to grow and change before our eyes. There's certainly action coming up with the tourney, um, whether that ends in absolute chaos or if George has something more subtle planned. It was nice to sort of walk around and meet the important characters, get a feel for the atmosphere of this tourney and be reminded of the hands tourney, of course, all the way back in game. I feel like I really soaked all of this in and perhaps... If 
you're one of the people who think that this is a boring chapter, remember it wasn't really designed to be read in isolation and that it's all set up for a later payoff, I think. Yeah, I would agree. This chapter, like a lot of, there's a lot of chapters that we occasionally notice how well they work as standalone chapters. And that's not necessarily something that's an important thing, like as a chapter, because we're not, no no one ever really reads these in isolation anyway for any length of time. But it is an interesting thing to look at. Uh, Certain, some chapters like Davos's trip to to the the sisters is a good example of one that's kind of fits kind of nicely by itself. This one maybe doesn't work that way because it's, it's, it implies so many other things that are about to happen. It'd be kind of weird to have an inc- a, a, a solo story where you're setting up for an event and then don't have that event. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that said, yeah, it's, it's really deep to me. It reminds me of a Cersei chapter, except for the positive aspects, except for the fact that the character is really happy, which Cersei almost never is. Um, but what I mean is that it's a female point of view dealing with the male gaze and men everywhere, even though she's got a good amount of power, but she's not fully in charge. But more importantly, the, the way Cersei chapters are written is there's so much going on. It's a, we call it like a fire hose of information. Perhaps of all the uh, POVs, hers have the most things to think about, the most rabbit holes. And this is kind of like that because not only are the many different things we're wondering what's going to happen next, but we have so many characters here. There's just a, a, the Waynewoods, the the Shets, Gulltown, the Mad Mouse, the Lynn Corbray. There's and each one of these characters is a bit of a rabbit hole themselves. Um, but let's go back a little farther. I, I really enjoy talking about the way this chapter was received and, and the way we have and analyzed it versus how we're going to analyze it today. Because yes, this chapter, a lot of you have heard analyses of this chapter before, and I want to make sure that we don't overlap too much with what's been said before. In fact, we've done an episode on this chapter before, whereas with the other Val Arboretus chapters for Winds of Winter, we haven't yet done a double duty because we didn't actually cover a Victorian one specifically. We did a Hellhorn episode. We never covered Tyrion two specifically. We did the Battle of Fire. Same goes for the Barristan chapters. This one we actually did cover, but it was right when it came out. And there's been a lot that's changed. I went back and looked at our old episode document after writing this one, I didn't start by looking at the old one and building from it because I wanted my thoughts to be completely fresh. And frankly, when I went back and looked at the other one, I was expecting it to be to have a lot of overlap and it didn't. Ashea looked at it too and you had kind of a similar reaction, right? Yeah, I was reading things I wrote and I was like, man, that was a really good point. And I was like, wait, I I was the one that caught that. Yes, you were. <laughs> like Aziz told me a joke. He was like, hey, it's like they're making the eight. And I laughed. And then I looked at the document and it was like, oh, I made that joke. Five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of us remembered. It's literally written in her te- yeah, in her, her colored <laughs> writing. You know, we, we color code which lines are ours. We're like, oh, yeah, we did that joke already. <laughs> but but I, was, I was very happy that we didn't have a whole lot of overlap. Because for one thing, between the show and the parallels between like Sansa and Good Queen Alison and just so much else, not the intervening years to think about it, there's just a big different perspective on all this. In that other version, which I do recommend because it's different, we focused more on the historical stuff between these characters, things that haven't really changed. There's nothing new to think about as far as Corbray history, for example, <laughs> or the history of Goldtown. Like that hasn't really changed. We didn't get new stuff on that. We got Fire and Blood, which is more recent history. So that doesn't really fit into the ancient history or the less ancient history. Anyway, something we've talked about in the past is how we have so much more familiarity with these characters, given so much time within the story to see their personalities develop. As both of you pointed out, a big thing here is noticing that Santa has changed, but she's still changing. She's not fully changed yet. She's still in that process. You just see 
some of those changes really taking root in her personality. Confidence, the way she talks to people, especially. Same goes for Littlefinger, though. He hasn't changed that much, though. But he's so sneaky and cunning. Unlike any character in the story, we actually can look at his whole career and see patterns, which no character in the story can do that because what character other than him has seen everything he's done? No character has done it. Like Ned saw some, Varys has seen some, Sansa has seen some, but no one has the whole picture on Littlefinger other than Littlefinger and us readers. But maybe that's not entirely true, though. What about Bran? As we saw in the show, Bran undermined Littlefinger eventually. Bran's the closest thing to having a reader's perspective, right? He, can, he potentially has access to anything we've seen as a, as a reader. And Littlefinger never reckoned with the possibility that someone could look into his past, like literally look into it. Tough break for him, I guess. Now, I think Littlefinger is Sansa's villain to slay, but getting help from her family wouldn't be out of place or unwelcome. I mean, this is the, one of the messages of the Starks is the pack survives. So if Sansa and Bran and Arya or whoever works together with this issue, that, that would be fitting. But she has to actually get to Winterfell first. And that's as important as anything else. And that's one of the main things we're all on the lookout here. Now, I th- even back then, five, six years ago, even before this chapter, people widely suspected Sansa's arc would transition to Winterfell eventually, especially because that was Littlefinger's explicit plan. And it just makes sense for so many reasons. So we've been on the lookout for that. But we're also looking for winter. This chapter, while it has a lot to say about Sansa going north, it's kind of, I'm not in denial about winter, but it's... Not, it's only addressed by the people wanting to profiteer off of it. That's the only time it really comes up. Tournament in the middle of winter, a little odd, a little, but in, in an important way. Um, and tournaments in general have been excellent for intrigue and dialogue and all-around storytelling. But winter, it's really unusual to have one in winter. So let's get some takes from the beginning of the chapter which we're calling Elaine One, the tourney of Hall comes again, a.k.a. the gang makes the eight. Here's that joke again. And the first line is, she was reading her little lord a tale of the winged knight when Mia Stone came knocking on the door of his bedchamber, clad in boots and riding leathers and smelling strongly of the stable. So Lady Gwyn, what do you, uh, what's your first take from the beginning here on this mm-hmm. first quote and um, how, how this uh, resonates with you? Well, I think right off the bat, Elaine is placed inside a fairy tale. So we get the strong sense that she's still Sansa inside because we all know Sansa is so deeply connected with stories and songs and fairy tales. Uh, In her final chapter in A Feast, she thinks to herself, I must be Elaine all the time, inside and out. But the very first line of her very next chapter, we see that's easier said than done. Well, this, she's got plenty of Elaine being presented to the world in this chapter, and she's actually become very good at it. I don't think we'll see her make any more mistakes, uh, like acknowledging that she's aware of Ned Stark's bastard son, like she did in that last uh, Feast chapter. Uh, we still repeatedly see in her thoughts that she remains Sansa, even when she corrects herself, like when she thinks about her father, Ned Stark. She's still a lot of that. That Sansa inside, uh, she's not really succeeding at just being Elaine inside and out. And I find that very comforting. Yeah, we don't want her to fully become someone else, right? She's still, we want her to be Sansa. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Nina writes that, similar to what you said, Lady Gwen, it's it's an interesting inversion that, yeah, Sansa's been in the story, been a story uh, type of character. Like, she's big on the stories and songs and all. That was how she was introduced. But now she's the one 
reading the story. Yes, she is in it still, but it's definitely leveled up in that she's the one telling the story to the boy, the one who needs to be told the things that she was told when she was younger. And so she's in this transitional state, which I think that's really, uh, a really neat and important observation kind of along that comfort zone that you talked about. But on the subtle end, this is a nice catch by Nina here. If we were to have seen this, like on a sitcom, you see someone walk in and there's straw in their hair and they're a little disheveled, you immediately think they were just having sex, right? Like that's like a dead giveaway. But it, when it's written like this and there's so much else happening along, I admit I didn't think of that. But when Nina pointed that, I'm like, oh yeah, of course. She just slept with Michael in the stables most likely and she's scowling, which is she says is an implication that this is what their relationship is now. Mia loves Michael, but their relationship is now a thing where they just bang in the stables. And that's not really love, is it? I mean, if that's all they have, I mean, you can have love and that, but like, it seems like that may be all they have. And that's a reason to scowl. And oh, that's kind of rough, right? Um, I, And Mia and Elaine as a, you know, they're both kind of in a similar situation where they're both bastards, well, Santa isn't really, but right <laughs> there, uh, that's the belief. And of course, their fathers were allegedly great friends, which is uh, something Sansa maybe will think about at some point. So there's a lot to say about all that. You guys have anything to, uh, any takes on this? Yeah, you're, I think you're really right that the relationship between Maya and Elaine is interesting. She helped Catelyn up the mountain in A Game of Thrones, don't forget, and <laughs> Elaine down the mountain in Feast. Maya is oblivious to the fact that the pair are mother and daughter, which creates some dramatic irony, meaning that the audience is acutely aware of something that the characters are not. Add to the fact that Maya's father was best buds with Ned Stark, and there's layers of intriguing dynamics flying about the place. So bravo, George. Yeah, that's really well done. Of course, something else we're talking about with Mia is she has, there's some Liana vibes here, um, not just with Mia, but with Santa herself, um, as George likes to do. He doesn't put all these things on one character. These transitions or these parallels aren't one-to-one. I found that pretty interesting. Also, uh, Nina points out the, the coat of arms is- issue here is pretty important. Um, it's something that can easily slide past, but what Harry has done with his coat of arms is very, Nina writes it, provocative. It's kind of like you don't normally claim descent. You don't normally put the arms of a house you don't belong to. (laughs) He has veil arms, you know, Aaron arms on his sigil. He's the heir through the maternal line. He's not an Aaron. So he would inherit because there's no Aaron's, but he's claiming to be an Aaron, which to people like us, we're like, ah, whatever. (laughs) You know, we're modern views. We don't care about class and births like they do, but we know that they care about that a lot. And so, that's a big deal that he's like, hey, I'm an Aaron, you know, and, and someone, even someone young like Robert is going to notice that. As an aside, there's a pretty deep irony in all these people looking down on a daughter of Ned Stark and a daughter of Robert Baratheon, given the way they think about <laughs> birth. <laughs> this line here about Sweet Robin, he seems to have these suspicions. And I wonder about these suspicions, whether they came from him or whether he's someone's whispering in his ear, maybe a little of both. The line is, I hate that Harry, Sweet Robin said when she was gone. He calls me cousin, but he's just waiting for me to die so he can take the eerie. He doesn't think I know, but I do. Now, these young kids are trained in, you know, like Nina brings up Come Into My Castle, which is a game to teach you about heritage and, and, and 
manners and things like that in the order of succession. We see the young Frey kids, which is when that's introduced. They know the line of succession really well, especially the one of them who's like, I'm 42nd in line. Like, whoa. <laughs> so it's not out of line for them to know this. But what do we think here? Is Littlefinger like whispering in his ear, telling him that Harry's coming for him? Or, or are we reading too much into that? Just like to hear y'all's thoughts on this in general. Well, I think I think he's an observant little kid. Kids often are. And, he, you know, he's um, he's a noble born kid. So he's well schooled, probably in all of, you know, all this background stuff. Plus, he spent his entire life at his mother's side, let's say. So he's got a lot of time into observing courtiers, judging their motives and stuff like that. And I'm sure that he had all of Lysa's suitors uh, that were hanging around her like flies uh, after his father died, more or less pegged for what they really wanted, which was the veil and not his mother. And she reinforced that to him. Definitely. Uh, yeah. She's fostered this sense of paranoia in the child that kind of seems like recognition, but it's honestly probably simple logic. I mean, it's easy enough to tell that someone doesn't like you <laughs> and as an aside, does Harry the heir, Harry the Harry, <laughs> actually <laughs> really like anyone other than Saffron? That's not. Mm. So far, I don't know. But, you know, it, being steeped in paranoia is the second factor, which, you know, Sweet Robin is naturally going to extend that to what Harry wants from him. Honestly, his paranoia should be in high gear right now, given that, you know, when he wouldn't, he was young and his mother was still alive. She was constantly hammering this, the eerie is impregnable into his head. You're safe here. Well, guess what? He's been forced to leave there now. He's not in his little safe space. So, uh, you know, you can expect that he's going to be in kind of like in red alert mode all the time. Plus, when you think about it, calling this kid Harry the heir is really awful from Sweet Robin's perspective <laughs> since it comes with this assumption that Harry and not Sweet Robin's own children far in the future are one day going to assume the weirwood throne of House Aaron. Yeah. It just, just implies that Sweet Robin is going to die and Harry's going to take over. Yeah, it's weird to celebrate someone as the heir when they're older than you, right? Like, that is awkward, right? <laughs> right. Like, yeah, he's like 10 years older than me. Like, what? <laughs> it's like, like, it's a little disturbing. Hold on, y'all. Yeah, so that's a good <laughs> point. Like, you're right. Maybe we're not giving just, maybe we're somewhat underestimating him just because he's a kid and because he's an annoying kid. But he's a kid. Like, let's not lose our sympathy for a child here. What do you think, Yokoi? Well, you know, Robin is probably smarter than people would give him credit for. Uh, kids in the real world do pick up on a lot more than, you know, you think they do. We all know that. So he was also surrounded with paranoia and Liza must have instilled a, a degree of suspicion on him. So Lady Gwyn really covered that. I also think that from a writing standpoint, setting up a rivalry between Robin and Harry is the right thing to do because it sets up future tension. And in a sort of closed off setting like the Vale, you want as much tension and interpersonal interpersonal tension as possible. It creates intrigue and of course allows Littlefinger and now Sansa to capitalize and exploit certain characters as we see him doing through Feast. As we'll be discussing today, it might be that George wants Robin and Harry to be tied together 
both entranced by the newly sassy Elaine. Yeah, well said. That's a good point. Nina writes a, a good comparison here. Robert's paranoia is like if he were a much if he were a much older man, he would be Emin Frey waving his paper like, "No, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord of River." <laughs> it's like <laughs> no one can take this castle from me, you know. And everybody's like, "Dude, <laughs> you're weird." <laughs> Seems a little desperate. <laughs> but this is a child and not not an old man who yeah. should know better by now. But they're both right. He's waving his paper around, uh, fearful of someone coming to take his castle. He's not wrong to be wary. <laughs> like There are people who want to come take that castle from him. Ditto Sweet Robin. People do want to take the, the castle from him. He's just worried about the wrong person. Harry the Air is, represents the danger, but he's not the brains behind that danger. As we know, that's, uh, that's more Littlefinger than anything else. Which is a, an overwhelming, overarching theme, perhaps, of this chapter, which is that there's a lot of people recognizing danger, but the wrong danger uh, or the wrong source of that danger. This is just one of those examples, and there will be more. So in discussing all this, Sweet Robin becomes agitated and says, as he often does, that he'll make them fly. All these people who are coming, he doesn't like. Uh, Harry and all these other people want things from him. As Lady Gwen put it, that's a really good way to put it, that they want things from him. But as you also pointed out, we may not even ever see the area again, him or even us readers. And if we do, it wouldn't be till after winter. So a dream of spring at best. Let's talk about one of the m more interesting parallels. Setting aside Lord Eamon of Riverrun, let's get a tighter parallel, which starts off with this quote here. Elaine smooths his hair. Lady Liza had never let the servants touch it, and after she had died, Robert had suffered terrible shaking fits whenever anyone came near him with a blade. So it had been allowed to grow until it tumbled over his shoulders and halfway down his flabby white chest. He does have pretty hair. If the gods are good and he lives long enough to wed, his wife will admire his hair, surely. <laughs> That's pretty rough calling this young kid flabby white chest. <laughs> so, that was harsh. Though. Yeah, but just consider all the comparisons to Ares here. Ares also let his hair get really long because he wouldn't let anyone come near him with a blade. Uh, mm -hmm. Yet he's excited about the prospect of winged knights protecting him because he loves the winged knights. He grew up liking that. Ares also was paranoid about people around him with blades, except for the Kingsguard. He, whatever paranoia he had, there was a bubble around the Kingsguard, perhaps because they rescued him from Summerhall. In addition to that, we have the hair thing. I mean, Ares probably did have nice hair despite it being <laughs> like, you know, that silver gold Targaryen hair. Mm -hmm. That's probably a bit of a similarity. Ares was known for yelling, you know, yelling at people and having wanting them to be executed on a whim. Which sim of course, it happened actually happened more regularly with him. They actually listened to his orders, whereas when little six-year-old Robin does it, they're like, eh, let's not throw them out the door just yet. So he ends up throwing his, you know, his porridge instead. I'm sure Aries threw some porridge here and there uh, as well. What do you have? There's some other pair. You've got, y'all you, have a few uh, takes on this too. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, really just the, the, paran the paranoia, you know, is, yeah. um, he's been molded into being such a paranoid little boy by by mostly by his mother you know lay that at yeah. Lysa's store uh but you know i, I was thinking because you mentioned about the king's guard and how Ares kind of trusted his king's guard because there was 
until Jamie Lannister, there had been no example of Kingsguard ever assassinating their king. So they seemed pretty safe. But I fully expect that the issue of Jamie Lannister will be raised by little paranoid Sweet Robin at some point when Elaine reassures him that his winged knights are sworn to protect him, just like the Knights of the Kingsguard. Can't you see Sweet Robin being like, but the Kingslayer. Yeah, what if, <laughs> what, if like, what, what if Harry is one of them? Like, <laughs> the guy he right? hates, he's like, oh. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah. Really a really great parallel. What do you think, Yokoi? Yeah, you mentioned Ares with his paranoia. Blend that in with Joffrey-like child rule- ruler oh, entitlement. Yeah. And I don't think Robin is a kid you'd want to be serving <laughs> on a long enough timeline I'm sure he'd make a few of the winged knights fly or else use them to assuage his paranoia by killing anyone he doesn't like the look of. I don't think Robin will have a long game at all, though it is interesting to consider what he would be like. As a side note, I think Sansa saying his wife um, will admire his hair is her positive nature shining through in a way, but it also can be read as damning him with praise is his hair the only thing robin's <laughs> wife will like about him maybe <laughs> well they'll like Probably. his his title there's always that <laughs> there's always <Yeah>. that <laughs> it's good to be the wife of the high lord uh, there's there's certain benefits <laughs> that come with that right <laughs> yeah so this is not the end of aries little sweet robin parallels and not the end of tournament heron hall tourney of wing knight parallels they'll be coming up Throughout this episode, it's pretty rich and, and it's it's really, really well done, really subtle. Let's talk about some of the actual setup of the tournament. Four and sixty knights had been invited to vie for places amongst Lord Robert Aaron's new Brotherhood of Winged Knights. And four and sixty knights had come to tilt for the right to wear falcons' wings upon their war helms and guard their lore. This is a pretty good timing for this episode. I doubt we had such good timing last time, but... It's only been about a month in real in the real world since March Madness, which the NCAA basketball tournament, which in the A Song of Ice and Fire world, especially A Song of Ice and Fire Twitter, we have Song of Madness, which is run by our friends over at Davos Fingers, one of whom will be our guest for Ariane 2. Uh, so that's fun. We have 64 people enter the Mar- March Madness tournament, 64 characters enter A Song of Madness. It gets cut to half, then half, then half again, which reduces it to eight. Now, of course, in the real-life tournaments, you go all the way down to one. Here, it's, it's down to eight. They may still determine a, an overall winner, but what really matters is the eight. Uh, those are going to be the winged knights. So it's of great interest, then. Who is randomly, quote-unquote, randomly assigned to fight who? Like, normally, in, a, in, a, in the real world, for March Madness basketball tournament, it's based on one loss record. You have the best teams are the... F- number one seeds and the teams with the lowest records are the lowest seeds. So it's, there's no one making these decisions. It's, it's prearranged by a system. But here, there's no such system. They're just going to do whatever the hell they want. And with Littlefinger in charge, okay, there's a few opportunities for, uh, for chicanery. Let's just go over a quick list of the history of chicanery in tournaments that we've seen in A Song of Ice <laughs> and Fire starting off with the mystery night where the snail, Uther uh, Underleaf, bribed the tourney master to give him favorable matchups. And of course, throughout the tournament, they were rigging who Damon II's opponents would be so that he could win. Not to mention the original tournament rigging scandal 
that Sansa, I think Sansa 2, her second ever chapter, is uh, the Hands Tournament, which is the killing of Sir Hugh of the Vale, by the way, by Sir Gregor the Mountain. Now, as we know, that turned out to be a, a red herring. No one, Gregor wasn't paid to do that. He just did it because he's like, ooh, I can kill this guy, so I'm gonna. But the snail really was paid to kill Sir Duncan. He didn't do it because he wasn't paid enough. And he was like, I'm insulted by this payment, so I'm just gonna make it look like I tried. Lucky for Duncan. In other words, of all the tricks we might see pulled, this is an option. Someone getting killed, quote, accidentally. Like Sandor said, Gregor's lance goes where Gregor wants his lance to go. And Gregor is a good jouster, but he's not the best jouster. There's other people who are more skilled than him. So someone out there might get killed and it might be on purpose. And I can't help but thinking, hey, if it's uh, 63 competitors into six, instead of 64, we have another number 63 out there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what do you all think about all of these all these different possibilities for corruption. At the very least, Littlefinger might accept bribes, you know, but that's just the very least. Yeah, I think. I mean, it would surprise me if there's a brisk trade in tourney births going on behind the scenes because (laughs) Littlefinger misses any opportunity to cash in somehow. But, uh, you know, let's not forget that tourneys or tilts can sometimes be fixed in reverse. I actually think you referred to that in order to assure a particular person's victory. Somebody throws a competition so that some one person can win, like we saw in the Mystery Night, mm-hmm. trying to make it so that Damon, the fiddler, would would ultimately win. And I think that uh, Lynn Corbray's presence in the training yard suggests that he's going to take part in the tourney. They don't really specify, but I have to assume since she's training that, that he's there for that reason. Yeah. He really appears to be a lethal competitor. But we're going to get back to this a little bit later. He's also notoriously short on cash. So if anyone is going to be bribed to uh, throw his own tilt in favor of a particular person in exchange for payment, the money would have to be on Lynn Corp. It's a real red flag, right? That's something the governments do. Like the U.S. government, I'm sure other governments do that. They look for people that have a lot of debt when they're considering whether to hire you. If they won't hire people for top secret positions if they have a lot of debt, because that's a big red flag that someone might discover you have that debt, discover you have no secrets, and offer to pay you for those secrets. It's just too much of an opportunity for uh, that sort of corruption. So that's why I think it's important that Lynn Corbray's debts are widely known. Jokeboy, what do you think? Obviously, at an event like this, on Little Fingers playing field, so to speak, you'd expect a few tricks and trades to occur. Like you said, who can forget the lance splinter that killed Hugh of the Vale? Tourneys like this are a great time to play the Game of Thrones. And that's not to mention the opportunity to cash in, as Aziz said. Yet our imaginations shouldn't run just as far as Littlefinger setting it all up. Remember, the tourney is Sansa's idea, which we're going to get to. It's part of her sort of mentoring arc in becoming a player. And therefore, there might be a few tricks of hers in the proceedings that we might find about, out about later that's possible. Good point. Yeah, yeah. We should not be so focused on what Littlefinger might do that we ignore other possibilities. That's a great point. Um, Nina believes that, yeah, Harry is an, a great option to, be, to win. Just like Damon II, was, they, they made it so he would win, even though he probably wasn't that capable of winning on his own. In fact... Well, this question is raised. Lord Belmore laughed. I never thought Royce would let him come. Is he blind or merely stupid? 
he is honorable. Sometimes it amounts to the same thing. If he denied the lad the chance to prove himself, it could create a rift between them. So why not let him tilt? The boy is no wise skilled enough to win a place amongst the winged knights. <laughs> He's not skilled enough, but there's certainly other ways to make that happen. What do you think about this? Yeah, I alluded to this, but almost definitely I see the results of this being as contrived as it is possible to make them a la the White Walls tourney. I mean, this tourney is being held for a specific reason. It's, you know, it's not just really fun and games. I think one of the winners is, or the winner, however they work it, uh, is almost guaranteed to be Harry the heir, uh, in spite of that exchange between Littlefinger and Lord Belmore, where Baelish conveniently plants the idea that Harry isn't skilled enough to win, <laughs> which will make his eventual victory shocking to everyone and none more so than the Lord Protector. So he's got plausible deniability right now. Mm. He, I had no idea. I thought the kid was just, you know, going to flunk out in the first round. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a brilliant reminder of how Littlefinger uses the honor of these nobles, like the certain rules of their society, he uses them against them because that's, that's expressed here. He's like, you can't not allow him to compete. That would be dishonorable. Plus it would maybe put a rift between them. If Harry the Air's like, you didn't let me compete in the tournament. And like, I'm supposed to get famous and do all these things, you jerk. You know, that's entirely possible. But you guys have another take here, something I didn't consider. Lady Gwyn, you cite a certain example of a different tournament that uh, where a favor made a big difference. And this is, this is a really good catch. I like this. Yeah, so, you know, sticking with this idea of Harry somehow winning this this favored spot in the eight. Look at the issue of Elaine's favor. In A Clash of Kings, Arstead Whitebeard remarks to Danny, a change in the wind may bring the gift of victory. Four ladies favored nodded round an arm. <laughs> so in context, we know this is a sneaky reference to Jorah and uh, Lynn Hightower kind of like an I know who you are <laughs> pointed comment from our stand to Jorah. But it's an off-sighted line that can be applied elsewhere. And this is a great place to bring it in. A lot of attention is paid to who Elaine is going to give her favor to. We read that quote earlier. Littlefinger warns her not to seem too eager and to promise her favor to anyone but Harry. And uh, as we heard, the chapter actually ends with Harry saying, can I have your favor? And Elaine is very coy when she says, you may not. It is <laughs> promised to another. She doesn't even know who the other is, anyone else. But there's like a huge, this huge question mark, right? So uh, we can't help but think of Jorah again, begging for Lanessa's favor and finding himself a different man once it had been granted. Mm. So I do think early on, Elaine will do what... Uh, Littlefinger has suggested she's going to choose someone else and that someone is going to be designed to tick off Harry just as much as possible, which I think is what Littlefinger was suggesting. So maybe someone like um, Loth or Brune, who is a very safe option because, you know, he, he's been, he's got some history with her. He's been kind to her. He even has uh, a bear sigil, little Jorah vibes. <laughs> there we go. So he could be a good comparison. <laughs> furthering the this parallel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, she also seemed to connect somehow with Wallace Wainwood. Her, yeah, um, yeah, that's right. So, you know, he's a very, you know, sweet and 
needy young man that uh, she's very kind to. Again, both these people that she connects with on some level on a positive way and are incredibly safe. They're not going to expect anything from her. So they, they would be good options for her. But in light of the fact that Harry is uh, noted to be lacking in the skills necessary to win attorney, and then you bring in that Jorah Mormont reference, mm-hmm. I think it's something to keep a close eye on if maybe she gives it to someone earlier and that yeah. person gets knocked out and she's free to give it to another person and eventually Ooh. it does get given to Harry. That's and a that's great the idea. thing that just sort of, you know, raises him up. That's a really good take. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. There's this, this is a really deep set of possibilities because there's some, some things in this chapter where I think we feel like we have a strong handle on what's going to happen. Of course, with the caveat that we could be wrong. But this one, like who she's going to give her favor to, George has done a really good job of leaving that somewhat open to possibility. Like you can't, I don't, I've never seen anyone give me a reason that's really certain as to why Sansa would pick one of these characters over another. There's like a stable of possibilities here. What do you think about all this, Yokoi? Yeah, I, I like this speculation. I just want to sort of broaden broaden the speculation I think that Littlefinger and Sansa have a sort of master plan brewing. So, yeah, let's dig in. We know they have a plan. It's stated in the text. So they have been scheming in private, off page, and we're not privy to all of Sansa's thoughts. Her and Littlefinger create attorney ostensibly to calm down Robin using details of things he loves. They manipulate proceedings. So Harry comes along, as noted, clearly a vital part of this plan. They arrange the tourney, so Harry comes in the top eight, and so he joins Robin's winged knights. However, they make the term of servitude limited to three years. This way, nobody is tied for life and people aren't losing wives and lands and so on. It's not the Kingsguard or a brotherhood like that, which might have put Harry off and might have put other people off that they wanted to be involved. So if Harry wins, he's tied up for three years to Robin, perhaps allowing Sansa to marry or bewitch him or whatever she's going to do with him. But she can still retain her independence and distance from him during his service when she needs it, and thus carry on her scheming towards the eventual recapturing of Winterfell as the long-game goal that's stated in Elaine to a Feast. With Harry tied to Robin in one place, Littlefinger can let him die, bump him off, play the two against each other, or do whatever they need to do to be in the right spot at the right time with the Vale army at their back. They will have the Lord of the Eyrie and the heir to the Vale in the same place, both smitten with Sansa. It gives Sansa and Littlefinger a lot of power and leeway to play their games from a story perspective, I think, and gradually cast their eyes up north. There are perhaps a few parts of this that need to be thought out in better detail, but I'm wondering if this could be the broad strokes or something like this. And it's also worth noting that while Harry coming in the top eight might be the real need for Littlefinger here, If Harry was to win outright, the stage would be set for him to be thought of as a local hero, something which could be leveraged and fostered by Littlefinger for his own ends. Plus, it would be interesting to check in on Robin's opinion of Harry if he were to win the tournament and perhaps be the chief winged knight. Things in the Vale 
would get more interesting if Harry won, so I would not bet against him. Yeah, that's this a really good take, Yoke Boy. Great thoughts. And I, I've been thinking more about like who uh, the earlier mention of Lynn Corbray and him like beating everyone until he gets to Harry and then just, oops, I guess, wow, he beat me, you know, <laughs> and then go for, you know, and then profit right from there, uh, whatever comes next. It's reminded to us right away uh, early on, like before some of these discussions happen, that uh, Littlefinger wanted to keep them apart. So he knows for now they need to be kept apart. But clearly he's angling for them to be together later if he wants Harry to win a spot and or to be enticed to stay by Elaine, which amounts to the same thing as far as Sweet Robin is concerned, um, just being in his presence all the time, which does set up a sort of vaguely Jamie on the Kingsguard type situation. The line is, you are in the Falcon Tower, Sir Harold, Elaine put in, far away from Sweet Robin. That was intentional, she knew. Peter Baelish did not leave such things to chance. That last line just does a lot of work. <laughs> Peter Baelish did not leave such things. You could just look at that line in a vacuum and mm -hmm. apply it to a lot of things. Just That's his, one of his mm -hmm. credos. He does have to leave some things to chance because he can't control everything. But that's the kind of thing that he does have control over. Honestly, that's a kind of one line that just tells you a story. You right. could you could give that <laughs> one line to someone and they would have a whole character in their head. That's a good point. <laughs> mm -hmm. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So let's talk about something else that comes up in history and something that's introduced as a topic in the world of Ice and Fire and expanded on in Fire and Blood and raised elsewhere, which is Aegon the Conqueror wanted to turn choose the Kingsguard, but Visenya told him that was a bad idea, and we just explained why. There's a lot of reasons why we just explained why. It's like, given all the corruption and the fixing, and people losing on purpose, and things like that, well, it's pretty straightforward, I guess you could say. Second of all, as one of our commenters pointed out, like, jousting? Like, how do you defend a king with your jousting skills? It's not actually that relevant to <laughs> defending a king. <laughs> like, jousting? What does that come up? It's like, oh no, the foes are coming for the king joust them yeah like what <laughs> it's just not <laughs> mount your horses and charge like wait the guy's behind the king with a dagger i mean yeah. it's poison <laughs> like they're poisoning him <laughs> like, <laughs> sweet sleep you're not gonna <laughs> you can't couch your lance and charge at that so visenya was right <laughs> that same lesson was understood by renly though too like renly of all people was like yeah that's why you want brienne and loris and people like that guarding you uh, even though they're not much good against shadows uh, fair play like no one can protect them against that even young griff as young as he has grasps this concept he's like duck will die for me like, Duck may not be a great fighter, but he'll jump in front of a crossbow for me. And that's, you don't have to be great with a sword to do that. The bottom line is tournaments don't test your loyalty. They test your skill. And as I just said, it's not even the particularly relevant kind of skill. But that's what Littlefinger wants. Littlefinger wants the, this exactly the types of corruption that Visenya was trying to avoid. He's like, hmm, that sounds great. So when this was Sansa's idea, but... Let's expand on that, how Littlefinger was like, hmm, this is a good idea. Like, it fits into his plan so well. Yoke, well, you have uh, 
you have a take here. Yeah, I think that having eight guys around Robin could very well play into Littlefinger's hands. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> if Robin dies of a fit, there are a lot, me, uh, a lot more people to blame for incompetence or however he'd like to frame it, or even he could pay one of them to do it. <laughs> now, they're not in the eerie. There might be a lot of freedom for Littlefinger to pull strings around Robin and expect him to play the knights against themselves if and when it suits him as usual. And yeah, so Sansa has, early on in the, in the chapter, Sansa thinks about the conception of the, cha- of the, almost the chapter, of the tournament. It was clever. The tourney, the prizes, the winged knights, it had all been her own notion. Lord Robert's mother had filled him full of fears, but he always took courage from the tales she read him of Sir Artis Aaron, the winged knight of legend, founder of his line. Why not surround him with winged knights, she had thought one night after Sweet Robin had finally drifted off to sleep. His own Kingsguard to keep him safe and make him brave. And no sooner did she tell Peter her idea than he went out and made it happen. Her goal is to give him courage. And that's pretty, that's pretty noble. I mean, setting aside that she's missing some of the big problems with this that come from lack of experience, probably. Like if she'd had if Visenya had had a talk with her somehow, she may have been like, okay, maybe this isn't such a great idea. But the fact that Littlefinger sees it as a good idea alone makes it a bit of a red flag. <laughs> but, um, but her notions are honorable. If Sweet Robin is calmer and braver, that's got like a trickle-down effect on everyone. And she's thinking about that. So she's, her heart is definitely in the right place. It's just that she's just being manipulated by an absolute master. And what's... 14, 15-year-old girl is, or a girl or boy, whatever, can deal with that and, and not be fooled at least somewhat. So give her a break, <laughs> you know, on being misled here. But I do think there's uh, there's a little bit of Cersei in this chapter that I've already explained just the way it's written. But also there's a few things Sansa does that are a little bit like Cersei because of she was influenced by Cersei. She was around her a lot. This reminds me a little bit of Cersei thinking she's done something really smart when in fact, it's not nearly as smart as it seems. <laughs> it's not nearly as clever as it seems. It's uh, because the clev- the things that make it clever are the things Littlefinger is trying to make happen behind the scenes that she's not even aware of or she's only dimly aware of. Well, I think uh, there's, there's this thing that's mentioned after that passage I just read about the planning in that Elaine originally suggested seven knights, like the Kingsguard, but it was Robert who insisted on eight because he <laughs> must have more knights than King Tommen. <laughs> and to me... I read that and then I read it again and I was like, you know what? This is this kind of little detail that's easy to miss. It's a poignant reminder that Sweet Robin and Tommen, are, who are more or less of an age, they would have known each other very well back in King's Landing. They grew up together. And if, you know, Sweet Robin can make himself feel superior to the boy king that he was probably once made to play with or maybe maybe not allowed to play with. I don't know. Their mothers are both crazy. Who knows what happened with that? But I'm sure they were aware of each other. Um, that could go a long way towards giving him confidence or courage. Hey, I'm better than Tom and that little twerp. Or I, I have no <laughs> idea what their relationship was like. The fact is that we're reminded that they knew each other, that they're both, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities between Tom and Sweet Robin both very young kids being manipulated by adults in their lives. Yeah, we were talking um, about that a bit in the chat. Just the fact, I mean, they would mm-hmm. have been, you know, five and six years old when they were around yeah. each other, which yeah. you can't imagine Tommen was ever mean to Sweet Robin. Like, you can't imagine it happening on that side. And Marcella, too, is within an age range. So 
It really would be interesting. Yeah. That Definitely. Is a good catch like out. I said, I, I think I think the mothers would be the big factor there, deciding mm-hmm. how much time they spent together and what they thought of each other, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point. I never thought about the fact that they knew each other as kids, even when we did this episode the first time, that, that, that sneak past. The relevant, we, we sort of touched on this, but the idea that these wing knights are also kind of hostages. Yes, they also threaten Sweet Robin himself, maybe without him realizing it, but he, these are all, whichever family these, these knights come from, yeah, that's uh, a life that, that's being held by uh, Littlefinger, you know, with his uh, finger on the trigger, so to speak. Well, we can think of one thing is like they think, okay, I'm signing myself away for three years. Nothing's going to change in that three-year period. But what happens if Sweet Robin dies before the end of that three-year term? They're stuck for three years unless he dies early. They can't leave sooner unless that happens. And I think a lot of us expect that's exactly what's going to happen. Sweet Robin is not likely to live much longer. And that will basically end this three-year period. So this (laughs) three-year assignment is probably going to be completely set aside as soon as Sweet Robin dies. But in that interim period, however long it lasts, instead of three years, it might just be three months. There's a lot that can be done, a lot of threats and and, uh, implied threats, things like that. So I don't think Sansa necessarily realizes all the downsides. She's not not thinking of all the potential corruption. If she's aware of it, it doesn't pop in her head. I don't think she sees the danger to Sweet Robin here, though she's kind of already been told in a manner of speaking that he's not long for this world. So what do you all think about this? Uh, like, I think this is all going to put Sweet Robin in more danger, but she just doesn't perceive it. Am I missing anything or? Yeah, I, I, just to give it sort of different opinion about what you said. Oh, you know, the, the thought thoughts aren't popping into Sansa's head. There's no evidence that she's planned some of the, the darker side of the planning. But it remained to me, it remains to be seen how much of the plan was Sansa's. Yes, she was thinking initially of of Robin and his health, but was that in the broader framework of some grander plan Littlefinger mentioned? Did they sort of collude together to build it up? Who thought of what? We don't know exactly. And of course, we don't know her full thoughts, just as we didn't know Eddard's thoughts about RLJ. It could turn out later on that there could be a reveal that Sansa had more of a hand in a grand plan than we might imagine at the current stage because she is supposed to be becoming this independent player of the game under Littlefinger's tutelage. She's supposed to be learning and coming up with her own ideas. And I I think that is the core of her current story. So it just wouldn't surprise me. Aside from that, it's good to see that whatever the case, Sansa is still keeping an eye on Robin. She does care about his health. And one question that comes up with the Elaine-Littlefinger partnership is, how far in will Elaine get? To what extent will she become Elaine and forget who she really is? I love to see signs that Sansa is still there and hope she is able to keep some of herself as she's schooled by one of the main villains in the series. Mm. With the thought of Robin one day succumbing to too much sweet sleep, it's interesting to consider how complicit Sansa would be in this plot. Yeah, like, is she going to get blamed for it? Like, it's, it's, it'll be an interesting parallel to Danny, who we suspect is, well, she's already getting blamed for her brother's death, and she's probably going to get blamed for Quentin's death and these other things, and for potentially a lot more than that. That's an interesting thing, is, is the way the society works, is that the people tend to think the worst about women in power. And yeah, that maybe Sansa gets more blame or as much blame as Littlefinger does, which would be unfair, but it could happen, right? That would be along with Lysa, too. 
Oh, yeah, great point. Great point, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and, and Littlefinger is really good at scapegoating, at putting the blame on someone else. He, he's done it so many times. He's done it with people he wants to use. But I don't think he would do that with Sansa because she's part of his end goal. But, you know, it's still, it's worth considering um, that he might, to protect himself, he could, if she's implicated, it's kind of one of those things where uh, he might maneuver the situation so that it's, if I go down for this, you do too. <laughs> you know, so like you need to protect me so that neither of us goes down for this, that kind of thing. Sansa, for the first time, she has a very, di- since, since chapter two in Feast, she has a much different outlook on her future, which is now she's got a path, allegedly, to get back to Winterfell, which was not there before. Like, she was kind of stuck. Princess in a gilded cage kind of situation where different people were after her for her claim. So it's kind of an inversion here for once. Instead of people manipulating her for her claim, which is still happening by Littlefinger, but she's now doing that to someone else. She's now manipulating Harry for her claim. (laughs) Instead of Harry or someone else (laughs) manipulating him, her for his claim or for her claim, she's manipulating her him for her claim. <laughs> but he's not, it's not nearly as dark because in all these other examples, the, they, they pretty much want to take Sansa and just have children with her and cast her aside. Whereas hmm. Harry's still getting a pretty good deal out of this. He would still be married to the Lady Winterfell. So it's not, you know, yeah. of course, he, setting aside the fact that he's probably going to die also. But that's not part of Sansa's plan. I'll just add, you know, I think that's great. I think it's, it's about Sansa achieving agency and that's it. You know, she's she's taken control of that. It's she she knows that her claim is important, but she's gonna let it be directed by her instead of other people. Increasingly, Sansa in the Winds of Winter has to become a proactive character. I think I say it, I'm going to say it later in the episode and elaborate. But I think it's really important that she steps away from just you know being a character who everyone leaves their impression on her. Now it's her turn to do the same to the story and be proactive. Yeah, really well said. And, and I think one thing that really, this chapter really does do that really well. More than anything else, like she, she, this is the first time she's done anything like this. She's arranging a big event. I mean, yes, Littlefinger had a lot to do with it, but she's hugely a part of the planning and, and putting it all together and all that, which is, she's never done anything like that before. And then just the way she talks to people in this chapter, this is basically what we're moving on to now is uh, in a minute here is how Sansa's changed and the way she talks. So, so we'll, we'll work our way towards that. On our way to that, we have this scene where uh, Lady Wainwood is uh, a part of the arriving party, and they're talking about um, the fancy gifts that are being given out. And at first, it's suggested that Nestor Royce is doing it because it's his castle. But Lady Wainwood, who is one of Littlefinger's allies, someone that has been paid off a lot by Littlefinger, points out that no, Littlefinger's paying for all this, not Nestor Royce. And that's as I said during the synopsis, you need people to point out who's bribing everyone else. They don't know who they've been bribed by. Like, what good is it from Littlefinger if they all think Nestor Royce is the one giving them all this stuff? Speaking of bribes, the trappings of power and such, something that Melisandre and Euron and other characters like to talk about. Nestor Royce and these hunting tapestries, they just keep coming back up. We've said what we think about these tapestries in the past, but I haven't gotten y'all's take, so let's, let's get a, your thoughts on it. It's such an enduring mystery it seems small, and it may be small, but it just keeps coming back, and we're just cur- very curious. Yeah, the tapestries is one of those mysteries that people are unsure if it's a mystery or not. Much has been said about them in the fandom. They were in King's Landing, and Littlefinger had them shipped to the Vale. Was this a sort of realism detail or something more? I once thought that 
There might have been something hidden inside the tapestries that was sort of smuggled out from under Cersei's nose. So it's not the tapestries we need to focus on, but what was inside. And I made a theory that it could have been Widow's Whale. Alas, somewhere out there, George has said that the that blade is currently in King's Landing. Although I think he should listen to me because it would be awesome for Sansa <laughs> to obtain part of ice for House Stark and her lost father, of course. Yeah, good call. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I have a consolation prize for you. Uh, because the idea that all those mentions of tapestries were meaningful and that there was something long and skinny rolled up inside them is just so tantalizing uh, that we did recently suggest that perhaps Littlefinger somehow got his hands on the fabled Royce, House Royce Valyrian steel blade lamentation that was lost in King's Landing during the storming of the Dragon Pit uh, in the Dance of the Dragons. Now, we did a long, I don't know if we did an essay or a, a, sec, a segment of this on a podcast or live stream ourselves recently. I think it's a little tinfoily, but from a narrative perspective, if that sword kind of just disappears and it's mentioned that it just kind of disappeared in the hands of some lowborn knight in King's Landing. Uh, you know, if, if George is going to assemble a fighting force of Valyrian steel armed knights to fight the others, uh, he might have to go back and find some of these lost blades. So there could be a narrative purpose to actually mentioning where some of them were lost, right? Plus, in my opinion, as far as the tapestries going to Nestor Royce, Littlefinger's already bought and sold Nest Lord Nestor with the Gates of the Moon. I mean, he doesn't need to buy him anymore. He doesn't need to give him these tapestries to gain his loyalty. He's pretty much already entangled him yeah. with that maneuver. So I think the tapestries in that sense seem like a little bit of overkill. But one thing Littlefinger does have is a Yon Royce-shaped uh, problem. And that problem could perhaps be solved by reuniting Young Royce with his family's fabled ancestral blade. That's a cool so, degree. Hmm. Uh, hmm. You know, I like my tinfoil here and there, but uh, I like to support it. Valyrian steel tinfoil in this case. Yeah, I mean, it's not super <laughs> right? tinfoil because it's not like super, un it's not like, it wouldn't be really weird if it happened. Mm. The, the reason it might be tinfoil is it maybe just is not going to come up. It's too outside of the story, you know, that kind of thing. But I, mm. yeah, I like the idea because it would be a, a cynical kind of way for George to show that everyone has their price. Like Jan Royce is just like adamantly against Littlefinger's rule and everything. But like this, maybe this is the He'll one wave thing. Wave a could, magic sword. Yeah, that could soften. <laughs> He's like, okay, fine. <laughs> like this... This this I'll take. <laughs> like, could he say no to that? He's like, well, if you don't want it, I'll just give it to Nestor. Like, he's like, if I don't, if you don't get it, then I'll give right. it to your your cousin here. This guy. All of a sudden, they're the famous <laughs> Royces instead. Like, yeah. <laughs> then we got a Lynn Lionel Corbray situation going on <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with the hearts with uh, Lady Forlorn. Okay, let's talk about the new Alessandra, as I've called it. Her, we've seen her good with wordplay. Like when she said to Joffrey, when she's like, my brother Rob is like, of course, you'll be out in front because that's where Rob always is. You know, that kind of thing where she's really clever and cutting with her words. And, but it seems polite. Um, she's always been pretty good at that, but it's a little here and there. It doesn't come up a lot. And this chapter is just constant. She's just constantly nailing it. Like whether she's putting someone at ease by saying dubbed to the knight with a stutter who can't say whatever word he was trying to say. I can't remember. But um, and then there's this snappy exchange 
Sir Ossifer speaks truly. You are the most beautiful maid in all the seven kingdoms. It might have been a sweeter courtesy had he not addressed it to her chest. Have you seen all those maids yourself, sir? Elaine asked him. You are young to be so widely traveled. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's not like mean, but it's like you're a lot, <laughs> you know, like cut it with the yeah. exaggeration, buddy. <laughs> like I'm deflecting your compliment. <laughs> it's kind of like I'm it's kind of like saying I'm not interested. And this, of course, comes when Miranda needs rescue, which is another astute observation that, you know, it's like a sisterhood thing going on. Like, oh, that woman, she's getting surrounded by dudes who are flirting with her and she is not interested. She can tell they can't or they don't care. Probably a little of both. And then the way she talks to Harry the heir is, is the penultimate or the ultimate version of this, the, the, the climax of her speaking ability. And it's great. I like it. Uh, charm him, entrance him, bewitch him, if you insist. Her extra confidence there comes from she knows that, you know, she knows she's good looking. She knows that she's smart, but it's still she's still a young person without a lot of experience. Littlefinger gives her a little extra confidence there. Then we get to this really interesting line where Santa considers um, where her thoughts are taking her and kind of has a correcting moment in her mind. The line is, he had a sandy mop of blonde hair, pale blue eyes and aquiline nose. Joffrey was calmly too, though, she reminded herself. A calmly monster. That's what he was. Little Lord Tyrion was kinder, twisted though he was. Although it's not necessarily saying much to say kinder than Joffrey, but still, she thinks of Tyrion and that's relevant. Do you guys have anything to say on any potential future? Not like a romantic relationship between Tyrion and Santa. That's off the table, I'm pretty sure. But political type of relationship, just anything at all, uh, future between them, politically or otherwise. I hope the sans thing is now a mere technicality, the marriage thing. I, I, I expect to see Littlefinger scheme his way around this later on. But certainly, we can't forget that they were married. It will be pertinent to future plot points for sure. I just don't want it to prohibit Sansa's growth in any way. Regarding their interpersonal relationship, it does sort of ick me out a bit. And I think Sansa deserves better. Uh, Sansa deserves better. And I hope that she gets the chance to be who, with who she wants to be with. Certainly, with Sansa's thoughts here, groundwork might be being laid for an amicable platonic meetup sometime in the future between Tyrion and Sansa. Yeah, I've, I've always felt that's where things are going. Uh, you know, he was kind to her by and large, uh, as much as he could be given the circumstances. And she thinks positively of him more than once. You know, Littlefinger did his best to frame Tyrion for Joffrey's death. He was fervently hoping that Cersei would rid him of Tyrion for more reasons than just Sansa's inconvenient marriage to him. Let us not forget that Tyrion was on his way to figuring out a lot of things about Peter Baelish when he was briefly on the small council, and that made Tyrion a threat. Given how much setup there is in A Clash of Kings to Tyrion getting wise to Littlefinger, uh, I actually think that Littlefinger's going to fail to resolve the marriage issue and that Sansa and Tyrion are going to end up doing it on their own in the end. I mean, I don't think they're going to be together, but I think they might meet and just say, yeah, let's agree mm. to dissolve this. I wonder if Sansa could ways. use it as a shield. Like if Littlefinger starts to really push his 
interest in her. Mm. <laughs> she could be like, yeah, I, actually, I'm still married. <laughs> like she I'm could married. maybe try to married. hold Sons him off a little here. bit. Married. Yeah. <laughs> Paper shield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but nice. hey, it's something. Maybe. <laughs> I never thought mm-hmm. about that. Like she could use it as a, as a defense, maybe a little bit. But it's like, no, I, I don't think we should have that absolved. The, you know, I said the words, you know, I'm married. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I got to keep my oath. You know? <laughs> it's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I got no way out of this. (laughs) (laughs) Another good example of her wordplay is is with Corbrek. The venom in his voice was so thick that for a moment, she almost forgot that Lynn Corbray was actually her father's cat's paw, bought and paid for. Or was he? Perhaps, instead of being Peter's man, pretending to be Peter's foe, He was actually his foe pretending to be his man, pretending to be his foe. Yeah, see, that's really good because this could be an inversion. This George is sort of like giving us a signal here that what are we looking at here? Is Lynn Corbray really Littlefinger's ally or vice versa? Is Littlefinger just using Lynn Corbray? Well, that's almost a certainty. But <laughs> whose side is he really on? That's And it's it's smart for Sansa to not just take things at surface value here. Uh, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's another little tiny thing about this that I love um, at this moment because it brings back, just for a minute, the Sansa that we knew from earlier books. The Sansa who gets a little confused and muddled about politics and things, right? Uh, In this chapter, we see that Elaine is so clever and composed, but, you know, in her thoughts, we can tell that Sansa has progressed a long ways in her journey from pawn to player. But this kind of brief confusion over what Lynn's motives might be, like, is it this or what? I think it's very much in character for that younger Sansa. Um, And I find it to be a poignant reminder that she's still you know, a child. She's she's not all the way there yet. She's not finished. Uh, very much enmeshed in the threads of her growth arc still. And, uh, you know, it's another one of those reassurances uh, that I find soothing that underneath that cool and calculating facade that she's presenting these days, our innocent little lemon cake is still there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a very huge sugary lemon cake standing there, which is somehow, again, subtle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I thought about that too. <laughs> Great take from Nina here. We had a chat about what might be going on in this moment, and I wanted to share these thoughts with y'all because I think um, we might be onto something here. If you think, analyze the situation and analyze Sansa's thoughts here, she might be onto something because Lynn might feel cheated by what's happened. Lynn did his job at the Lord's Declarant meeting. He made it provocative. He ended the meaning by drawing his sword, and that was prearranged, and it worked. But on the other hand, Littlefinger arranged his brother's marriage to this merchant-class bride who's now got a kid, and Lynn's pissed about that. And that's... He might be really pissed about that instead of just acting pissed about that. He probably is legitimately mad about that. And so what does that mean? Does that mean Lynn is not going to help Littlefinger? Well, I wouldn't assume that because he's still short of cash. He still needs the money. So Littlefinger kind of still has him bent over a bit and needing, uh, knowing what he needs and being a man that can supply that. We also, another thing we discussed, Nina and I, that, that I think resonates really well is she took a look back at his patterns of behavior, something I alluded to at the beginning and how when we have so much evidence, so many, uh, so many books worth of 
Littlefinger scheming, we can lay it all out and look for patterns. And this is definitely something he does. He makes allies with someone and then he screws them over in the process. He makes a secret plan with someone and then inverts it so that they get screwed. Ned Stark is our first them. example. Dantos, <laughs> perfect example. The Tyrells, the whole thing with the Tyrells was he arranged that thing and then stole Sansa from them, right? <laughs> like that was, he totally screwed them <laughs> over like, there too. <laughs> so this is absolutely what he's done. And he must, so it might be about to happen to Lynn Corbray. Because if you think about it, if he's going to screw over one of the Corbrays, is it going to be the one everyone hates that has no money or the rich brother who actually owns all the land? <laughs> Who's he going to actually get behind? Which one is Littlefinger going to be an ally with? The one with power or the one that everyone hates? Like, uh... <laughs> so, mm, yeah. So Corbray says, guy who remarks that the guy who fought him in practice was a fool for testing him. But I think Corbray is a bigger fool for getting involved with Littlefinger. And again, because he's so hated, think about how easy it will be. Like, not like one-on-one -on -one fighting. Of course, that's the one thing you can't do with him. But like, his, given his terrible reputation, just lean into that. All Littlefinger has to do is stop pretending Corbray is his enemy to just making it real. <laughs> just go, yeah, he's been my enemy this whole time. Look what he did at the Lord's Declarant meeting. Like, I hate that guy. <laughs> it's really easy for him to just throw, kick him to the curb, throw him to the wolves, and, and, and he has no allies of his own. Littlefinger's like his own ally. Everybody hates the guy. So it's going to be super easy to dispose of this, of this loose end, I think. So, yeah. He could also be like, Lady Forlorn, anyone, you know? Like, take the sword from this guy and it's yours or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, Sansa sort of testing Corbray. It says she couldn't help herself. I just <laughs> love the subtle indications in this chapter that she's really beginning to play the pol political game with schemes, plots, and mind games. This is a fine example and should be a great sign to all the Sansa fans that she is becoming proactive, which I mentioned, a proactive character before our eyes, forcing a response from a character as she tries to figure him out is a really healthy sign of things to come, I think. I want Sansa to grow and become empowered. And this minor provocation is something the Queen of Thorns would do, for example, right? Hmm. Well said. Yeah, Queen of Thorns. She may have even, she's even witnessed it firsthand, like being around her. Exactly. Seeing her lines. Mm -hmm. Yes, very good. That's great. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned Cersei's influence, but you're right. Queen of Thorns pretty big as well. Uh, well, right. what about you, Lady Gwyn? Well, I want to back up to the moment when uh, Sansa and Miranda first see Lynn Corbray. Miranda says, now there's the very sort of husband I need. Although she does acknowledge a beat later that Lynn doesn't seem all that interested in women. Mm -hmm. I think we should keep an eye on on this. I don't have any any uh, fully formed thoughts on that, but hmm. keep yeah, an yeah. Eye who does Miranda really want? Like, she brings up her brings up little fingers, little finger. Like she wants little times. fingers. Like she wants this chapter. Harry. Yeah, yeah, she wants one of these highborn. She wants to. She's ambitious. Yeah, uh, she's ambitious, and she's you know she's a widow, so she's going to be remarried. So she could be a she could be a prize for somebody. Yeah, she's a real wild none, card. Yeah, real wild card. Like, yeah, hmm. I, I think there's going to be something around her. But nonetheless, so it's, 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 the two of them are watching Lynn fight. Uh, we get to see the inner thoughts of Sansa Stark, who grew up watching her father and brothers in the training yard. She can see very early on that Lynn's skill overmatches that of his bigger component and proves that she completely understands what motivates him mm -hmm. when Miranda wonders aloud if Sir Lynn might take care of her unwanted suitors for him. And Elaine replies, he might. 
for a plump bag of gold. <laughs> so in this, she's repeating a fairly well-known detail about Lynn Corbray that Littlefinger had impressed upon her back in A Feast for Crows. But it is a very interesting statement in light of what happens immediately afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Because we pivot from Lynn Corbray to the Mad Mouse. She doesn't know to be wary of him, but in fact, maybe she should, she should perhaps be more wary of him. We get this very provocative, subtle line that has, does a lot of work. A good melee is all a hedge knight can hope for, unless he stumbles on a bag of dragons. And that's not likely, is it? <laughs> Lady Gwen, what was your reaction to this? So when I first read this chapter, like I read that line and I literally just gasped out loud. <laughs> ah! Back in A Feast for Crows, Sir Shadrick tells Brienne, I seek for Sansa Stark as well. The eunuch has offered a plump bag of gold for this girl you've never heard of. And here in this scene, it says, Elaine turned abruptly from the yard and bumped into a short, sharp-faced man with a brush of orange hair who came up behind her. They literally stumble on each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> so nice. yeah, you know that sunshiny feel I was mentioning earlier? Right in this moment, that kind of disappears. Like a big black cloud came and covered up the sun. The Mad Mouse drops into that scene with a whole lot of menace hidden behind his polite and self-effacing words. It's over really quickly, but boy, does that contribute to the underlying darkness of this chapter. And then just to circle back to Lynn Corbray, as I mentioned just moments earlier, Elaine had commented that he would be highly motivated by a plump bag of gold. So that's the exact <laughs> phrase that Shadrick used Brienne, used to Brienne in A Feast for Crows. And it's exactly what we're equating Elaine with here. So I think this is, again, something to watch out for. If Elaine's true identity becomes known, then Shadrick might not be the only hunter in the woods, to use his own phrasing, to Brienne back in A Feast. Uh, I have more thoughts on this, but I will save them for later. Right on. Yeah, this is so let's get into that. The the possibility of what's brewing here. Of course, Sir Shadrick couldn't simply go, hey, come with me. And she leaves. So that's not going to happen. So he would have to take her. He would have to capture her by force. I don't suppose he could convince her to leave with him to turn over to Varus. That seems completely unlikely. Why would she do that? So yeah, the tourney is coming uh, and real battles are happening elsewhere in the series. But as we said at the beginning, we've got this calm before the storm feel just as Drogon came for Daznak's pit and the other two dragons came when battle came outside Marine, and there was plague and bodies everywhere and they were drawn by all that. We've been wondering for a while about these Vale clansmen. I wonder if all this activity is an opportunity for them to do some damage or if they're on the shelf for another purpose. After all, they're more tied to Tyrion than to Sansa or any of this stuff. The Vale attacking the gates of the moon, the Vale clansmen attacking the gates of the moon would be a bit much given their history. I haven't seen that kind of aggression from them. On the other hand, Tyrion armed them. They're better armed and armored than they've ever been. Of course, we're not talking about the entire run of Vale clansmen. There's a lot of them well armed like this. And interestingly, we could maybe make a connection here. I, I kind of don't think the the clans will capture her. I don't think. Sir Shadrick will either, but my, it does raise the question of if there could be a connection point there because she is technically Tyrion's husband and those Vale clansmen love Tyrion. He's the one that armed them, led them to victory and all that. So finding out they have the wife of the imp, the half man, 
eh, this is kind of feels like that um, your theory about the Royce Valyrian steel sword that this could fit really well, but maybe it just there's no time for it, or maybe it's just too much. But it's rational in my mind. Like this is the kind of thing that could happen, and she could bring the Vale clans north to help fight the others or something like that. I don't know. Um, they could be part of her army going north, something like that. But alongside that, so these two twin possibilities of kidnapped by Sir Shadrick, kidnapped by the Vale clansmen. What do we all think about the possibility? Uh, Yoke Boy, start with you. Yeah, Aziz, you made really great points. I'm not going to say that I don't think the Klansmen will come back into the story at some point. It could happen. It could happen a bit later. They are newly armed, like you say, and one might be inclined to see that detail as a Chekhov's gun. However, I don't think that they're about to derail Sansa's story, and so don't expect them to come riding into the middle of the tourney in Elaine 2 and snatch Sansa. I, I think this might betray a story, and I'll talk about why in a minute, because Aziz wanted to talk through another possibility, and I'd rather talk about um, this as a conclusion to that. Right on. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to suggest is it would be an interesting parallel to Daznak's pit. Uh, Danny being whisked away by Drogon amidst all the chaos and then everything goes on without her. Of course, the big difference there is there's a lot of other POVs behind when she leaves, which is, it would be weird. It would be kind of odd for her to be the, the only POV in the veil to be whisked away. But the reason I think about things like that is because something we've been doing throughout this, this episode is we're wondering where this chapter was placed. Since it was pulled from A Dance with Dragons, and we know that George does a lot of work with connecting chapters close to each other thematically. We, we, we went over that a lot in Valerie Readers. We start every episode with that, talking about how these chapters work together. And so if we think about that, well, where was this chapter originally placed back then? And so I wonder if it was placed near the Daznax Pit chapter, then that would kind of fit. But I think that mm. maybe too soon in the, in the book. I think maybe it was later. I personally think it, it would have been near Barristan's Kingmaker chapter when he's thinking about Ashara Dane because that's Tournament of Hall stuff. Um, mm -hmm. That's my best guess. But anyway, so, yeah, so I agree with you, Yoke Boy. There's a bit of a, a diversion from this topic, but I basically think, I think I agree with you that it seems maybe uh, the threat of it or maybe that this has a different narrative purpose than the actual kidnapping. Um, but yeah, what do you think, uh, Yoke Boy? Let's, let's continue with your thoughts here. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain why I don't like the idea of Shadrich or the Klansmen succeeding in taking Sansa. Not that they necessarily won't try or they won't show up and have a, have a good go, but Sansa sort of getting kidnapped and whisked away. I just can't agree with it. I've been talking about Sansa's time as a damsel in distress, her disempowerment over the course of many pages, her need for learning and growth, her very clear mentor, pupil, political player, tropes going on with Littlefinger, and her character goals of being an independent, proven player, young woman who will one day lead at Winterfell. All of this is made plain in the text, I think. And as Sansa kidnap betrays all of this setup, she is growing, learning. The Vale setup has been long in the making, and she's around the right characters for her arc right now. She's poised to move from a pawn to a player in the Game of Thrones and one day be that self-sufficient chess master we all know she can be if only she can get through this final stage of learning. 
This mentor story puts her in parallel with her brother, Bran, with Bloodraven, and her sister, Arya, with the Faceless Men. All of them are learning their niche independently, but in a sense, together. This is no accident, guys. They're in finishing school before they gain their newfound abilities and begin to use them, and then they return home to where they began, changed. This is classic adventure storytelling, especially involving children. I think for Sansa to be ripped out of her current situation would ruin all of this great setup. The Mad Mouse and possibly the clans will be there to add tension and depth rather than to derail the intricately assembled situation. After all this time, Sansa is finally becoming a proactive character, as I've said earlier. And having her been snatched is the very opposite of proactive. That's a good point. I'm going to get Lady Gwyn's take on this, but we've got a couple of questions that have popped in that are relevant, mm-hmm. directly relevant to this. Let me throw these out there first before hearing her answer. Brand Winslow sent a super chat, says, how likely do you guys reckon that it is that the newly armed and armored mountain clans will attack the tourney? So we sort of addressed that. Uh, Lady Gwyn will probably do a little more of that here. Mm-hmm. Stormy4400 says, I think that Sansa's dream of faces with monstrous inhuman masks attacking her could be the mountain clans. Uh, they go back and forth between whether that's them or the others. Now, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, you honestly hadn't considered that yeah. one. Mm-hmm. And then Max L says, will the Mountain Clan guys recognize her from King's Landing? That was going to be part of your answer, Lady Gwen. Yes, uh, some of them know sense mm-hmm. of face-to-face, like around, from being around Tyrion and being personal guards to him yeah. and all that. So that, along with Sir Shadrick, knowing who she is, does set up a possibility that you are going to bring to our attention now. Yeah, and I want to bring up that um, you guys talked a lot about kidnapping. Yeah. But of course, an attack on Tourney does not necessarily involve kidnapping. That's true. It could turn into yes, that. That wouldn't true. be necessarily yeah. there. They could maybe want to kidnap, but it doesn't turn into it. But either way, uh, the Klansmen attacking the tourney, I think, is some of what people were talking about. Right, yeah, because they that's the kind of yeah. thing they do is carry off women and loot and all that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, they wouldn't succeed. Yeah, I was certainly... Ob- yeah. Yeah, I was certainly objecting to the kidnapping, not, not the idea that there could be a, you know, interjection of some sort and the Klansmen could show up. That is definitely on the table and possible. Yeah, so I think we agree that actually being kidnapped is really unlikely, but the attempt or something like it is very likely, mm-hmm. if not pretty likely. So yeah, Lady Gwynne, let's hear from you. Okay, so I haven't, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days, a way to resolve all of these issues, because a lot of these things are sort of hinted at, uh, but then some of them are kind of, like Yoke Boy was pointing out, they might work against one another. So uh, I do think the clansmen being attracted to the gathering of the Vale nobility in the same way Drogon came, was attracted by the blood at, at Daznak's pit is a great one. So yeah, I can see that happening. And let's say they do show up. Let's say Sir Shadrick takes the opportunity of the chaos caused by their arrival to grab a lane and split. Or try, because in my kind of off-the-cuff crackpot, maybe some of the clansmen recognize Sansa and try to save her because to her, to them, she's obviously Tyrion's wife. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, what are you doing? You can't do, do that with her. <laughs> or alternatively, or maybe even additionally, let's just add chaos on chaos. What if uh, Lynn Corbray was about to become involved? I mentioned him earlier, being highly motivated by gold. Uh, So say he becomes involved in this moment of chaos, maybe he sees an opportunity to cash in on a plump bag of gold. Mm. Once Once her identity becomes known, he could see a real 
real definite price to Sansa Stark. Well, if Varys is offering a plump bag of gold, maybe Littlefinger will give me two. <laughs> so nice. maybe Lynn Corbray turns up and, you know, captures her back and sells her back to Littlefinger. In other words, I think it's conceivable one way or another. All of these things that seem to be hinted at uh, in this chapter uh, and previously could actually occur without taking Sansa out of her narrative progression and um, also might solve another issue, um, which, well, which we're about to mention. I just mentioned it, but you were going to get back into this with a specific question. Cool. Yeah. So... Yeah, very well said, first of all. But I think you, you're right. And this is where the genius comes in because we're considering this kidnapping idea, which doesn't seem to fit because it would extend things. And like Lyoko says very well, kind of takes her out of her narrative. So it might be, what I think is so brilliant about it is it might be an inversion. It might actually, rather than delay the narrative, slow it down, it might speed things up. And the reason for that is throughout all this, in order for Lynn Corbray to know that that's Sansa, he has to find out somehow because currently he doesn't. If, for the, if the mountain clans show up and they recognize her or if Shadrick, by trying to take her, who, who knows exactly how the chaos will come down or play <laughs> out exactly. But the identity of Sansa could get revealed amidst all that pretty easily, right? Um, there's a lot of people who know she, who she is. And if the mountain clans get in there, then that's a whole nother group of people that know. So there's a lot of opportunities for her identity to get revealed. And that's where your theory comes into play. If Lynn Corbray knows who she is, he can take his opportunity to make some money. One of the ideas we entertained, among many others, in our first version of this episode six years ago was the possibility that Lynn Corbray and the Mad Mouse could work together. So this is another option that you presented that they could criminalize each other. One of them kidnaps <laughs> and then one of them kidnaps back, right? Like they're both... It's like, just yeah, like, she's fine, she's fine. Yeah. It's like <laughs> romancing the stone where everyone's just killing everyone for the prize. And it's like, right. I betray you for it. Then he betrays him for it. And then, yeah. Or uh, that movie Ronin where they just, everyone has that briefcase. They all kill each other for it. <laughs> or Pulp Fiction is also a briefcase. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about that. If her identity is revealed, that is a huge accelerator to the plot because Littlefinger was planning on doing that eventually anyway. He's picking his moment. He wanted to pick the time specifically so that it would incite everyone to impress them and be like, yes, we will follow you north. Maybe this is just going to get sped up a little bit. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I this is a condition that I like to call premature revelation. Oh, good title. Yeah, that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I've always wondered about these logistics um, revealing Sansa's identity at this tourney because it seems highly possible on the one hand, all this stuff we're talking about. But then, you know, Littlefinger has, has made such a big deal of bringing her out at the right moment. Once, once they're free of Tyrion, he's going to make this big reveal. So I tend to think that Shadrick is going to try to make off with Elaine without revealing her identity. Maybe it's going to be thinking it'll be easier for him to just get her away if he doesn't shout about who she is. I mean, stealing some bastard girl is a little different from stealing Sansa Stark. But just imagine, if you will, the, ir- the irony if it's the clansmen and Sansa's association <laughs> with Tyrion. That's actually the cause of her big reveal because Littlefinger wants to get rid of Tyrion. And now all of a sudden, Tyrion's little face is going to be raised back in the picture. I mean, I think it would just be totally delicious. Um, Although I could definitely see Littlefinger embracing it and finding a way to carry on with his schemes. 
maybe paying Lynn Corbray two plump bags of gold. So despite these damn ponds screwing everything up. <laughs> they always do. I agree that her identity being revealed is possible because even though Littlefinger doesn't want that to happen just yet, he can't control everything. And there are, are examples of Littlefinger, Varys, and Illyrio making plans that go awry, and then they show their elite playing skills by adapting their plots. However, so it is possible, but however, I do feel like Sansa should stay as Elaine for a while. Ironically, it's giving her the freedom to explore herself internally after a long time as an abused captive. So I think not being... Sansa for a while longer would allow more of this growth and allow the dynamics being set up to play out before our eyes. Don't get me wrong, I want Sansa to reclaim her stark identity with some aplomb, but I just think it's a bit too early for her to shed this Elaine skin just yet. But on a related note, keep an eye on Sansa's sense of identity. We don't want her to become Littlefinger. Mm -hmm. She's not his daughter. She doesn't want that either. So in Wins, there will be internal conflict in Sansa's heart, I have no doubt. At some stage in the future, we expect this to be resolved as she becomes Sansa again. When she does so, she might not need Littlefinger anymore. At that point, the pupil surpasses the master and that is going to be a dangerous time to be Littlefinger. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is why I think it's too soon for all of this change to be in motion just yet. But by the end of winter, then now you're talking, that's a different story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, we actually got a question offline before the episode. When do we think Sansa's chapters we'll say Sansa instead of Elaine again. Like how many more? And it might be the next one. The, my, the next one might be the last Elaine chapter, the one that where this tournament actually takes place, where if her identity is revealed, then the next chapter will be Sansa. If not, then I presume it'll still be Elaine. <laughs> but that's a very good potential um, for it to be two chapters from now. Um, do you guys have mm -hmm. any different thoughts on that? Or is that uh, pretty similar to where you're at? Pretty, pretty similar. Yeah. yeah. It would mirror her uh, Feast for Crows mm -hmm. uh, in the reverse because she was Sansa Sansa then. Oh, yeah. Um, she had two Elaine chapters. So it would also kind of mirror the reveal, would be kind of a neat parallel to the end of A Dance of Dragons, where we have a big reveal of, even though we've seen it, oh, obviously we already knew Aegon, but Varys sort of reemerges and, and announces mm. Aegon's identity to, well, a dead man. But hey, <laughs> it's got that feel to it of uh, emerging, re-emerging uh, from your false identity and all that. Also, uh, Nina points out here an important take that uh, the whole thing is bringing all these hungry knights into one place, the, the, the flower of the veil's chivalry, so that they can be spellbound all at once with this mission of reclaiming this castle and doing all this stuff. So it, it's harder to spread the word throughout the veil of that. You want them to be present for that, for this reveal. So that's another thing that maybe suggests that it's somewhat imminent. Parallels and themes. We, let's get back to that. We talked, we've set up a lot about this connection to Ares and uh, Robert, but also let's talk about what something we promised, which was uh, comparing Liana to Sansa and Elaine, uh, uh, or rather, both of her versions, and uh, with a little bit of Mia thrown in there. 
Also, I just want to toss out the a comparison to Turning Heron Hall. That's that's uh, when Bran is told that story. A big part of it is the dancing, right? They talk about the who danced with who, mm-hmm. and we have a little mm-hmm. bit of that here with Sansa's dancing with different people and talking to them here and there. And the sigils are always referred to in this version as well because uh, the houses are also important and the nobility, the families, and all that. Anyway, so th- with this comparison, we have a couple of fun points to link. Harry falls for Sansa versus Rhaegar falling for Lyanna. Um, we have a hidden identity question during the tournament, the Night of the Laughing Tree. There we have here, we have Sansa's hidden identity. Both of them are pursued for marriage by Robert Baratheon slash Robert Aaron. <laughs> and of course, Sweet Robin was actually named for Robert Baratheon. And Lady Gwen, you, this is relevant to your earlier point, isn't it? Yeah, this is a good place to bring up the issue of the ladies' favor in a tournament. Uh, again, because that's often cited as laying the groundwork in story for our acceptance of Rhaegar's sudden prowess at the Tourney of Harrenhal in defeating so many superior knights. I mean, people like uh, Barristan and, and Arthur Dane yeah. that uh, probably wouldn't normally defeat in a, at a tournament uh, because he was wearing Lyanna's metaphorical favor. Mm-hmm. So let's say Elaine ends up wearing her favor uh, granting her favor to Harry for that final tilt and against all expectations, he wins. <laughs> and then he names her Queen of Love and Beauty. And uh, I think that's a big juicy parallel just waiting to happen. It really is. And it's part of why the kidnapping vibes, even though I agree, is not very likely to succeed. It really attaches itself to this theme super well because obviously that's a perception. Was Liana kidnapped or not? <laughs> that's like, well, <laughs> did she run away or was she kidnapped? So that's 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 beautifully here. And... um Nina writes another comparison. We Both of these characters are engaged to a handsome young lord slash lord-in-waiting with a bastard child by Vale women already. <laughs> yes. Mm. Ah, yeah, that's another one. Uh, in, you know, Robert's case, having Mia, of course. So that's a, a great parallel as well. And of course, as, we, as I alluded to earlier, we had Barristan's thoughts on Ashara and Harrenhal, which you just mentioned. He thinks, gosh, if I had only beaten Rhaegar, dang it. <laughs> so much would have come <laughs> in different. If I, I mean, and he's not perplexed at losing, but, you, but it is a little like, how did I lose? You know, like Rhaegar, what? Lose to that what? <laughs> like, so, why did I lose? He's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he doesn't quite get it, so. So now here's some more parallels from Aerys and Robert. We have the paranoia over the succession. We talked about the long hair, ungroomed, and fear of blades and servants. We talked about the ill health. Aerys was in ill health early on, but he did become ill health over time. And it manifests in very similar ways to the way Robert is with weakness and, and um, outbursts and wanting to make people fly versus wanting to burn them. Aerys also wanted women who weren't his. He wanted to sleep around a lot, which isn't what's happening here because Robert's too young for that. But he is... He does say that. He says, I'll get married and then I can still have you as my girlfriend. And Sansa's like, no. <laughs> but of course, she <laughs> doesn't say it like that. She says it in a way that shames him and makes him go, no, I wouldn't want to hurt you. So she's, again, using her excellent wordplay skills. But seriously, how ironic is this? George R. R. Martin just nails us with this. John Aaron has a son like the man he rebelled against. <laughs> he named for the main rebel. Robert. Like, gah, that is twisted, man. <laughs> so that's so cool. Uh, Nina writes another parallel. Harrenhal, the disguised Lyanna, wore, bore the sigil of a laughing werewood tree. Rhaegar was sent to find the mystery knight, but while he claimed he never found him, only his shield, it seems far more likely 
far more likely for the story of Rhaegar and Lyanna that they did meet in the godswood of Harrenhal afterward, after all the shield was there and all that. Yeah, so I, you guys probably are on that same trip as well, where, yeah, Rhaegar did see Lyanna that night. Rhaegar kept Lyanna's identity a mystery, leaving the Weirwood shield as the only testament. And Shadrach has a Weirwood colored shield. It's a white mouse with red eyes. But his intent mm-hmm. is not to keep a Stark maiden's identity a secret, but to exploit it. So it's the, it's another, it's like an inversion or a reversal there. Um, just as Rhaegar found out that it was Lyanna and kept it a secret, we have this reversal. So that's really cool. And of course, when we have a ton of Tournament of Hall parallels here that we've, that we've outlined. How many more will we have when the actual event actually happens? Like, it hasn't actually started yet, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? So I'm really excited because this is rich before it even starts. Like, another parallel, like uh, the jousting, things that started before the jousting, like Howland Reed's encounter with the Squires and Liana. That's before the event actually starts. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, little bits like that. Lady Gwen, earlier you raised a point that I thought was interesting comparing them to Knights, maybe calling them Knights of Autumn because it's not quite winter and that goes back to Catelyn and all that. And there's mm-hmm. this quote, Rob would be his age if, she were, if he were still alive. She could not help but think, but Rob died a king and this is just a boy. That's such a great line because it touches on like 12 different things we talked about in this, cha- in this mm-hmm. uh, episode. It touches on Sansa not being able to forget who she is, her thoughts going back to who she really is, not Elaine. Like, Rob is not Elaine's brother, right? Rob is Sansa's brother. And then thinking of this whole concept of knights of summer or winter of, of his death, he's, he was kind of, he's, he was basically a knight of, of summer himself. I do love that. She always thinks about Rob. Yeah. It's, it's like one of those moments where this chapter shows you that it isn't just all happy, right? It's like, it's one of the dark undersides of the chapters are thinking about that. Like, her, she thinks of mm-hmm. both Rob and her father's death. Um, but she moves yeah. away from it quickly, but it's there. Yeah, you know, so you know it's there. Yeah. I put up uh, on Twitter and in our Discord, I put up a list of parallels between Lynn Corbray and Damon Targaryen, as in the Rogue Prince. In our original episode on this one, we made comparisons to Damon Blackfire, given all the presence of second sons and winged helms and all that, which Damon Blackfire himself had. So, also, just real quick, Sir Uthor Underleaf, who we, ta- we talked about in the Mystery Night um, as a character who gives us a lot of ideas for how this tournament might play out, given all his bribery and tournament maneuvering. Both of him and Sir Shadrick are sort of like, they have this intentionally unthreatening sigil. A snail and a mouse, right? <laughs> Yet they're both sort of <laughs> underhandedly brave. Like, they pretend to not be, but they actually are pretty bold the way they're making these moves, you know? And both of them mm-hmm. had been ransomed. We've seen that. Like, that, like Uthor Underleaf, because his plans go awry and he's not, he's not meant to face the guy he bribed for, he, and he ended up loses and then he has to pay his ransom. And then, of course, Sir Shadrick had to be ransomed after the Battle of Blackwater. If the snail leaves a trail of slime, the mouse, I don't know what he leaves behind, but yeah. <laughs> poop. Yeah, <laughs> mouse poop. Never had, <laughs> never had mice in your house. <laughs> The seduction obsession theme is present here mm. as well as in Arya's chapter. We've, there's a lot of parallels between Arya and Sansa at this point in their arcs with hidden identities, their names, um, like the connections to their mother, just so many things like that. Uh, and with and looking forward as well, we have Arianne may seduce young Griff in a way that might end up reminding us of how 
Harry and Sansa get along, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. We'll see about that. And then, of course, Victorian's trying to kidnap the most beautiful woman in the world. That's not exactly a, a seduction. <laughs> but it's the Ironborn version of that. <laughs> so <laughs> we also have Elaine and Miranda racing to the gates. Like, they run. And that mm-hmm. maybe that reminds me of Lady Lance racing her horse yeah. uh, in Arianne's chapter. Those are all the girls at the same age. And Lady Lance is also a, uh, a bastard. Got that vibe. Uh, another similarity, prayer. Something that I think is pretty neat. There's lots of prayer in all the battle chapters for obvious reasons. But even Sansa has a little, says a little prayer before she meets Harry because it feels like she's going into battle. <laughs> going in. Going in. Like, here we go. And indeed, he's the jerk right away. Let's see. Let's talk about the kettle black drama here for a minute. Um, this is something we go pretty deep with in the previous episode. But we're going to try We're going to talk about different angles on it here. When she had left Peter Baelish that morning, he had been breaking his fast with old Oswell, who had arrived last night from Gulltown on a lathered horse. My original thoughts, or me and Ashea's original thoughts on this, was we were really focused on Oswell's sons. The three Kettleblack sons are all in huge trouble. And you would think that takes precedence over anything else he might be worried about. What we didn't, so we won't go into that because that's covered in our previous episode. What we'll talk about here is what if it's something else or what if it's multiple things? What if it's both his sons being in danger, which you would think that probably included, but there's other things that he might be bringing uh, news of as well. After all, he came from Gulltown, not King's Landing, though maybe he came from Gulltown via King's Landing. So, for example, what if he's learned about Winterfell? What if he's learned that Stannis has, uh, there's fighting up there and that affects their plans to go north and take Winterfell? What if, uh, I kind of doubt Rickon's on the scene, but that's just something that Rickon, that that Littlefinger hasn't planned for, another Stark being out there. Or what about Aegon's invasion? Like, that just happened. That's talked about at the end of the book with, uh, at, at at King's Landing in the council session. So that's something that would be relevant for Littlefinger to know. Lady Gwen, I see you have some notes here. What do you think about all this? Well, I, I feel for Oswell. I mean, I, he's so loyal to Littlefinger, he seems to be. And uh, now he's got all three of his sons are accused of betting the queen. They're either facing death or the wall. And we have to wonder, could there be any limits <laughs> to his loyalty? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's bringing this news. It's the second time he's kind of raced in with, with news uh, that is of note. But I, I think that it's almost certainly about Cersei because they don't know about what's happened with Cersei yet in this chapter, that Cersei has been arrested. In Elaine 2, in Feast for Crows, uh, Littlefinger says, Cersei stumbles uh, from one idiocy to the next, helped along by her counsel of the deaf, the dim, and the blind, which is a great line. Uh, I've always anticipated she would beggar the realm and destroy herself, but I never expected she'd do it quite so fast. So in that last Sansa chapter in A Feast for Crows, Cersei's still in power, although she's swiftly losing her grip. And according to Miranda Royce, River Run had fallen, but Dragonstone had not. Since those two events actually do happen in quick succession, the likely explanation is that news of Dragonstone, which is the second to happen, falling, hadn't yet reached the Vale, which kind of allows us to narrow Elaine to of A Feast for Crows down to a really pretty specific time range. But here we are in Elaine 1, in the Winds of Winter, which takes place an indeterminate number of days later. Uh, we don't really know 
they don't have many clues to place this on the timeline. Um, it's got to be long enough to have planned this tourney, but not so long that news of Cersei's imprisonment, which took place just days after she herself got news about Dragonstone falling, that that news hasn't reached the Vale yet, as far as we know. So, I mean, in my opinion, I think it's huge news about the Queen Regent arriving in the Vale. There could be other news attached to it. I, I know that George shows us all the time that news travels via ships. So, you know, he could have all kinds of juicy things that he's reporting. But I think the juiciest thing is uh, about Cersei being arrested. And uh, I think Littlefinger, whose stock and trade is information, after all, is going to choose to keep this one to himself <laughs> for right now. Yeah, good boy. Uh, I am assuming that he would use this knowledge um, to his benefit, perhaps as soon as the next chapter, um, since it can't really be kept secret I have for questions. too long. Yeah. If he's bringing news to him via ship, um, do we think mm -hmm. that's faster than a raven? Is that, isn't that news that could be shared? It isn't secret news. Well, I guess it's that he doesn't... I don't know that Oswell has access to send ravens. Okay, I, yeah, I just wanted to know. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like a raven mm -hmm. would be quicker. There's flaws with it, of course. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, like a maester mm -hmm. would read it. And, yeah, and, like there's plenty of yeah. issues, but it doesn't seem like it's a secret thing that's happening. And that's one reason why people wouldn't use a raven mm -hmm. sometimes. So, mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's worth considering that Oswell is, is coming in person rather than sending a message. Because even if it's not a raven, he could have sent it. Surely he has, he doesn't travel to the Vale every time he wants to tell a little thing or something. Surely they have a system. Yeah, that's this, true. So this time he's coming in person though. So that does, that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. And clearly with in his last, lathered horse, it was fast. He came in on a lathered horse the, in the very last chapter, too, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Um, so I think he just kind of, my sort of headcanon of Oswell went, is that he's just, I mean, Oswell went. Oswell Cattleblack is that he's just kind of like back and forth, <laughs> back and forth from, from wherever Littlefinger is over to Gulltown, you know, picking up the news, bringing it back, mm -hmm. putting it down. Going back. <laughs> <laughs> he's the, he's the um, newsman. He is the newsman. Messenger man. Um, you know, and don't you got it since Littlefinger is, um, he's got everybody there at the gates of the moon. He's controlling the news that comes in via Raven. Mm, All those other people point. that are there, the Lord's Declarant, the people there for the tourney, they surely didn't bring their own maesters. Um, at least they're, they're not going to be able to, if they did, they're not going to be able to really have access to incoming Ravens. That's going to go directly to whoever's the maester at the gates it, of the moon. Thing. It really, I, will, I will also note that people have, have been bringing up Danny. If there's, if there's any chance there's news of Danny. That would be very interesting. I think that was the news in the last chapter. In, in, that he kept in, for himself. Um, yeah, the, the four queens, Elaine the five two. queens, or three queens, yeah. The three queens, um, I'm pretty sure, because Oswald comes back with some very interesting news and then and then Littlefinger mentions the three queens. And I think it's pretty obvious in if you look at like the progression in A Feast for Crows, uh, the news of Danny is spreading via ship. You keep yeah. hearing about it in various places and it's all ship, ship, ship. So yeah. I think that, He's he, what he's getting at is that news about Danny has come via ship. Oswald has brought it back to back to Littlefinger, and he's now sitting there gleefully rubbing his hands, thinking about <laughs> Cersei and Marjorie and, and Danny just kind of duking it out <laughs> while he just sits there on the sidelines. It really gives a great feel, adds to the chapter's sense of 
isolation from the rest of the world. That Littlefinger is controlling. It's like a Littlefinger created bubble where even the, the world yeah. news is not reaching them fully and he's controlling what they know and what they don't know. Which is a great segue to this last topic. Uh, we have questions after this, but the, the last prepared topic we have, which is the most overarching topic of, of them all, which is winter. And like, what's a bigger topic than that? So it's mentioned that Harry and company are late because of snows in the passes. Something you pointed out, well, Lady Gwen, was that this, so much of this chapter happens out in the sunshine and the light. This is one of the examples of where it's not. They go down to this dark vault where they're planning evil. I mean, it's very evil they're planning. How, how can we profiteer off of starvation? Hmm, let's figure this out. Let's do the math. Uh, the line, you say more than fair, my lord. I say less than we would wish. Wait, if need be, buy the food yourself and keep it stored. Winter is coming. Prices must go higher. Like, damn it, Littlefinger. <laughs> he sure is interesting, though. He says block their ports, let them sell elsewhere. So it's not even just don't sell, it's prevent the selling. Like, hardcore price fixing, super cynical. If they follow his advice, they're going to make a lot of money, though. So he, he's, he's proving himself exactly the kind of leader they thought they were getting. Someone that will make them lots of money. Uh, he, he'll help them become more and more wealthy. And it's, it's pretty brilliant, as dark as it is. W what do you think about this just evil plan to profit off starvation, uh, Yokoi? Well, Littlefinger really is the complete player, isn't he? What a villain. <laughs> He knows how to work the rumor mill, as we've been talking about, and also how to control economic conditions. So in this sense, he's Varys and Illyrio rolled into one. As dastardly as he is, who better for Sansa to learn from than Littlefinger? If she can just retain who she is, really deep down under the disguise and beneath the years of mistreatment, she can be both astute and righteous. And that is her internal character goal. I'm hoping to, you know, learn from Littlefinger, but then reject his the lessons of his teachings and reject his morals. Here, Littlefinger is manipulating the food stores to make profit and new allies. And yeah, if Sansa can master all of this sort of thing, but without the evil streak, she could one day use her skills to feed her people during harsh winters, befriend influential merchants and lords, and so on. She is learning all the time, and her eyes are becoming wide open. That's a great take. Like, she can learn what Littlefinger is doing here and do the opposite. <laughs> like, let me see how I can make sure everyone can eat instead of, let me make sure I can make a lot of money <laughs> off of people <laughs> not eating. That's a really good way to put it. I didn't think of that particular inversion <clears throat> like that a lot. Because you're right. Like, that's something we saw in the show. Like, she was specifically focused on survival and helping people get armored mm -hmm. and, and all that. That was a, one of the things that the show showed us that I think is probably pretty accurate. Uh, at some point. Yeah, and, and she can learn from Littlefinger's organization. She can take take his teachings, but bend them into something more moral. Yeah, efficiency isn't, is, efficiency is neutral. Efficiency is great if it's, it's something good. Like efficient evil is, is horrible. Like you'd rather have it be inefficient if it was evil, but efficiency doesn't have good or evil attached to it. It is just, it changes the dynamic um, when it's applied. <laughs> Lady Gwen, let's get your take on this. 
Well, you know, read this and it came as no surprise to me. Littlefinger's been manipulating the economy of Westeros for years. Tyrion began to untangle this in The Clash of Kings. There's this great quote where Tyrion thinks, oh, he was clever. He did not simply collect the gold and lock it in a treasure vault. No, he paid the king's debts in promises and put the king's gold to work. He bought wagons, shops, ships, houses. He bought grain when it was plentiful and sold bread when it was scarce. He bought wool from the north and linen from the south and lace from list, stored it, moved it, dyed it, sold it. The golden dragons bred and multiplied and Littlefinger lent them out and brought them home with hatchlings. And so he's been engaging in all these really kind of shady practices. And we untangled a lot of this in our Littlefinger episode, the first one. We Highly recommended. That. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite episodes uh, to write. Uh, as Must have been side, a challenge. <laughs> it, it was. It was. <laughs> It was one of those that grew from one to two, actually, because it was so Not much surprising. fun. Not <laughs> so, um, But we made the case that Littlefinger's price-fixing schemes led directly to the bread riots mm-hmm. and the Antlermen's plot to support Stannis, things like that that were going on in King's Landing in A Clash of Kings. And Tyrion um, became suspicious in hindsight, but never quite connected all the dots because he gets so distracted by a lot of more pressing issues. Plus, he gets removed from the small council, you know, and he's got a lot of kind of survival stuff that he's worried about after that. (laughs) But we could have more of the same right here. You know, uh, he's he basically tells Lords Grafton and Belmore to close the port of of Gulltown and hold their grain at any cost. In fact, he also suggests let Yon Royce and his cronies uh, sell their grain however they want. They have the ability to bypass Gulltown, so fine, let them do it. That way they're going to have enough silver to buy the hoarded grain <laughs> from Gulltown and from Littlefinger when food grows scarce. I mean, it's quite evil. He's, he's also very big on value-added investments, so look for him to be doing things like investing in bakeries and making sure he can squeeze as much as he can in taxes, like mill taxes, and I don't know if it applies here, but import taxes, customs duties, all that sort of stuff. He will squeeze every penny he can. Good call. The situation. penny, the, the dwarf's penny, that was... Uh... That was that was that Littlefinger. Was... That was that was Tyrion's <laughs> idea, but but uh, this kind of thing Littlefinger would do, right? <laughs> yep, exactly. So, I think if nothing else, Sons is going to be aware of the presence of a huge horde of grain here at the gates of the moon when winter does set in. And uh, isn't it interesting that he deploys her house words in his instructions yes. to Lord Belmore and well Grafton? Said. Yeah, I didn't think about that last part, that she's going to be aware of this store of grain here. That's a great idea. She can be like, look, I know where there's some food. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good, that's a great call. (laughs) Uh, Nina expands on the idea a little bit here by suggesting that maybe in, maybe in line with how he manipulated King's Landing before with the bread riots and the antler men, that, that point you brought up there, that this could be a way of doing economic battle, so to speak, with King's Landing, who... Uh, if they're intending to, if Littlefinger's eventual goal is to form a new kingdom or sit the Iron Throne, he's got to eject the current people sitting there, whether that's Aegon or the Lannisters. And certainly it worked really well during the War of the Five Kings. When King's Landing was starving, the Tyrells were treated as heroes when the starvation ended, even though the Tyrells were the ones that blocked the food from getting to King's Landing. So it just goes to show if the pe- people are desperate and you feed them, 
you gain a lot of acclaim. Now, Sansa, as we just explained, might do that in the North because not to gain acclaim, but for de- to be decent, to be a good leader, whereas Littlefinger might do it for political gain here at, at King's Landing in order to have his power base beat out the current uh, occupants of the Iron Throne. So I could see something like that turning. So yeah, that's a, that's a really deep topic. Um, and I'd like to use that as a segue to mention and shout out Ice and Fire Con next week. Uh, virtual Ice and Fire Con for the first time. And one of the panels I'm a part of is trade. Uh, it's called stonks in Westeros. <laughs> so like stocks, like the old <laughs> internet term for stocks. And we're going to talk about uh, the economies and things like that, and how it's going to be a little more relevant given exactly this topic and ones that are related to it because food supply is going to be uh, of rising importance. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've got the sister men mentioned. Miranda rolled her eyes. They're from the sisters. Did you ever know a sister man who could joust? They clean their swords with codfish oil and wash in tubs of cold water, cold seawater. And she mentions the webbed toes. These were mentioned by Godric Borel, these sons, uh, the seven sons, all determined to be knights. Now, I don't, I, I wonder about the sister men. I wonder if they have a role to play. It's kind of hard for me to figure out what, whether they're going to be relevant or not. Maybe they're just an interesting piece of, of the world. But uh, they're, they're so isolated in their own way on their islands. I don't know if there's anything to say about them other than to draw our attention to this because it's neat. Moving on to from webbed toes to horse faces. This one, I think we maybe have a little more to say about this quote here. The first lady, Waynewood, must have been a mare, I think. How else to explain why all the Waynewood men are horse faced? Yeah, what do we think about this, Lady Gwen? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about this. This there's this very this is an interesting statement in light of those stark cousins in the veil that Catelyn mentions in a storm of swords. There's a distinct possibility that one of Lord Edwile Stark's nieces married into House Wainwood, which could make the present Wainwood's close Stark relations, those cousins that Kat was talking about. And in a story where so many houses have distinctive looks, you've got your full-lipped and golden-haired Lannisters, you've got chinless Freys, wild black-haired Baratheons, the signature look of House Stark would have to be long, horsey faces. Yep. So we've asked this question in the past. Is that statement a subtle hint to the Wainwood ancestry? Would a past Lady Wainwood, who was born a Stark, explain why, quote, all the Wainwood men are horse-faced? Is there a purpose to making the Starks related to the Wainwoods other than backstory? I think... Catelyn would think so, given that she brings this history up as part of the matter of Rob's succession. So um, Waynewood's stark relationship is something uh, we definitely want to keep our eyes on in terms of Littlefinger's plotting and uh, any number of other things that might happen going forward. Yeah, this is something we talked about back in our 2013 episode was Mm -hmm. the fact that the Waynewoods are clearly related by this horse-based remark. We go into very deep detail on the Royce-Stark connection in our House Royce episode. So if you all want more on that, well, there you go. That's where it is. There's a lot of deep <laughs> history on the veil in House Royce and this particular connection. And the Stark, Stark matriarch who was born a Royce, that's the key to the She-Wolves of Winterfell situation. So that's uh, another connection. 
Also, we have House Tollett mentioned here. Those are Dolores Ed's cousins um, of uncertain cousinry. We don't know exactly the relation, but it's clearly some sort of relation. So that's cool. Uh, all right, let's take some questions. Dornish Dame says, we should also remember Sansa learned John had been named Lord Commander of the, Nor- of the Night's Watch from Randa's gossipy fishing and a feast of crows. Littlefinger didn't say anything to her about the man who most considers Sansa's last living sibling. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely referenced that. Um, that's super important. Something you brought up, Lady Gwen, that she's a little, been a little more careful about, or was that Yoko who brought that up? Either way, one of y'all brought yeah. that up. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting that Littlefinger hasn't said anything on that point. I wonder... He hasn't instructed her not to talk about her family. Maybe she just, maybe that's just implied. Mm. I don't know. I hmm. wonder if there's anything else. Yeah, there. he hasn't, but he did. I mean, at one point he did. Or yeah, Elaine won, probably. Yeah, I mean, if he, if he didn't want her to out herself, you would think he would not want her to be surprised by big news about her family. Yeah, which mm. might be part of why he's keeping some of this news from reaching everybody. But yeah. clearly that one, you know, that yeah. one snuck past. He can't stop it all. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how much it really snuck past. Is another, is, you know, in terms of, I wonder if he cares about Miranda knowing or, if, yeah. Mm. Does Littlefinger outright not want Miranda to know that Sense is Elaine? Yeah, and we mm. wonder if he's if she's already suspicious of that. Like, some people figured it out, you know, and, and maybe she's one of them. Mm-hmm. We, we've definitely been wary of that possibility. I don't think, I mean, I think there's no doubt in my mind that Miranda Royce knows okay. who Elaine Stone is. I, I really don't think there's any mm-hmm. doubt for me personally. Okay. But I have never considered whether uh, Littlefinger felt super strong, like whether he wanted to keep that from Miranda Royce or whether, yeah. Yeah, I wonder what Littlefinger thinks of Miranda generally. Yeah. He's talked about, like, be wary of her, like she's smarter than she thinks. She's smarter than she seems. But he hasn't really said much else about her. And then she know? makes all those kind of sexual jokes about him. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like like we said earlier, she's a real wild card here. <laughs> a real wild card. <laughs> Along with the, uh, who the favor might get pinned on by Sansa. That's she's, this is one of the things that it's really hard to pin down here. Ah, pin down, yeah. Um, <laughs> Karen Sita sends a super chat, says, because the share is the best. Appreciate that, Karen Sita. Stormy4400 says, sends a super chat and says, for support and question for later. Why are there eight wing knights, not seven? I'm sure that George has a specific reason for the number. Well, we, uh, Sweet Robin wanted one more than Tommen. That's, uh, that was addressed earlier in the episode. You may have caught that. But <laughs> you noticed another thing here. He's eight years old and he has eight knights. <laughs> one for each year he's been alive. <laughs> that seems pretty nice. Is he going to keep adding one every year? And I guess not because he's not going to make many more years. <laughs> <laughs> Also, Stormy Forder Hundred says, "Why are lemons so important in both Sansa and Danny's arc? Sansa with the lemon cakes and Danny with the lemon tree." That's a good question. I don't have a ready answer for that. I've, I've got a ready answer, Z. I mean, if if you chose to see it this way, I don't delve into too much symbolism because you can read into it how you want. But you know, it works as a nice symbol for innocence because it always reminds us that Sansa is Sansa and she's back at Winterfell and Arya's running around throwing things at her. It always takes me back to Sansa being innocent Sansa and reminds us of her young girlish days. And Danny, it's always, you know, linked to her childhood, you, you know, and the one place in her memory when she felt happy. Again, innocence. Whether on purpose or not from George, you could definitely read it like that. That's a great take, yeah. There's a couple of characters that have these these similar sort of thoughts of when they were happiest. I know um, Jeff Hartline, Brenda Beefish, wrote an essay on uh, Reddit recently about how Tyrion's version of the lemon tree is thinking of his time with Tysha. That was his his 
brief time when he was happiest. There's probably a few other characters mm-hmm. that have something like that as well. But, kind of touchstone, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's a good, yeah, it's a perfect term for it. Yeah, right, right on. Next question is from Palavan. Uh, I think her intention was to recreate Robin's favorite story because she thinks that's what a little boy would like. Like she thought life in King's Landing would be for her before all hell broke loose. Yes, I think that is very true. Definitely she's sort of uh, approaching his childhood the way her childhood was approached. Uh, Guilty Undertaker says, isn't Harry called the young falcon at one point? (laughs) Being called the young blank might as well be a death sentence. (laughs) That's a good yeah. point. That's like pretty I much think... everyone's got that there. That's a great point. <laughs> I feel like there was a thread about this at Westeros years <laughs> young ago. Dragon, young dragon, yeah, young, young whatever guy. <laughs> young, because uh, it was young, yeah, young dragon, young wolf. Young, young Griff. Young Griff. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's not, he's, he's not going to live, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so young falcon, R.I.P. Oh, Harry. <laughs> There's, yeah, right, so, oof. There's young Henley and old Henley of the Night's Watch. I bet I guess young Henley is more doomed of the two. <laughs> young <laughs> Henley. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> it's like uh it's like rapper names. It's like Lil, Lil <laughs> Yeah. <right. laughs> Instead of young. I mean, there's a lot of young name rappers also with that word. Young this, young thug, young this, young that. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Uh, Matthew Dominique says, History of Westeros, do you think Rand is actually Elaine's friend or is she just getting close to her because she knows she's Santa Stark? I think a little of both. I mean, I think they legitimately... I would, I would like to add on to this before you guys respond okay. and say that Dornish Dame continues and says that Miranda's knowledge of Sansa's identity is partly why she only teases her about the betrothal to Harry and isn't catty about the man she wants going to a girl of seemingly far lower birth. Ooh. And I think that is relevant to answering whether she's friends with her or not. I'll put up mm-hmm. an Andy Bernard, nailed it, gift for that one. <laughs> Jeff for that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely on board with that. I, I do think that she knows, and but I do think that they're they're friends and she's teasing her about, about Harry. She's teasing her about Littlefinger. I think that's rooted in her knowing that Littlefinger isn't really Elaine's father. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. All those little... Little finger quote questions. Yeah, yeah. You, you probably don't say that to to someone's daughter. <laughs> to someone's daughter. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, I, I think Ashea is right to be completely confident that <laughs> Randa knows. Yeah, this is this is mm-hmm. pushing that envelope a bit. Like, yeah, it's pretty hard to imagine she doesn't know with all these details. I, <laughs> being I do know. I there. think it's it's kind of icky, but you know, she could actually be probing to see what their relationship is like. Oh, you know, is you all is there together or something? an actual like an icky sexual? Which, she's not wrong I mean, to suspect that because yeah. Littlefinger wants it, right? Yeah, Santa, I know. But, yeah. It's very, it is very on point. But. And I, yeah, I wonder how much Miranda. I mean, she would be familiar with Littlefinger and Lysa, and how much she knows about his mm-hmm. psychology and who he's interested in. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. wild card. She's she's excellent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> next. Point. This isn't really a, this isn't a question, more of a, a good catch by Archmaster Rennie from our Flick channel. Mad Mouse's Bag of Dragons line also applies to Dunk. Dunk the Lunk went to a tournament, fell into a world of dragons. <laughs> Not a bag, but you could say he fell into a bag with dragons. Um, <laughs> sort of like, um, kind of similar, the bit with Tyrion, um, with Makoro's <laughs> line saying, you in the midst of it all, snarling, <laughs> dragons old and young, bright and dark. Young dragons being the ones who were doomed, clearly. <laughs> Tree Girl says, there's a, there's a line from Littlefinger who says, the night belongs to you when she's talking to Elaine. And that's like, and she thinks maybe that's foreshadowing for 
like referring to the long night, like how she's going to be crucial to the, the North recovering or at least leading the North during the long night. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a nice little catch. I could see that being a little George wordplay there. Another line I noticed was uh, he said that you're going to be, you'll be sitting under the sconce, your face will shine, your hair will be a fire, which is a funny phrasing because her hair isn't red right now. That's usually what you say about red hair. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that's like a crown reference, like a symbol, symbolic mm. of her wearing the crown of the North or something like that. I don't know. It's an interesting, it was a kind of a strange line the way it's written. I probably should have quoted it, but oh well. Take by Rolling Knight here who says the name Uther Shet, which is the pimply ginger lad, kind of looks like the word utter shit. <laughs> 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 yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> Poor Uther. And uh, Young Boy, you appreciate this. His sigil is a bunch of seagulls, I think. So uh, there is a connection between seagulls and shit. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the very clear references yeah. there with the seagulls. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because like, it's all so humorous, the, all the stuff to do with those two characters, you know. <laughs> yes. Isabel Lamego says, wouldn't big amounts of medicine he should not be taking mess his brain a little? Yeah, probably. That was, of course, you guys talking about how paranoid uh, the sweet, you, you know, sweet Robin was yeah, and the, just about where his mind was. Yeah, the, the drugs mm-hmm. might be making it worse. Yeah, yeah he's a little drug-addled, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I never it's certainly not helping him, is it? No. It, it, mentally, not mentally. It's it's like yeah, it's like burning the candle to at both ends because he's like yes, it's making him calmer for now, but it's it's shortening his life. Yeah. Uh, Sheev Palpatine says Oathkeeper plus Widow's Whale ties into Ned keeping his oath to Lyanna and her death. Oh yeah, as far as the the two names there, Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale. Yeah, because she was mm-hmm. dying in his arms or whatever, and then he kept it. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Obviously related to the sword being smuggled. Yeah. in the tapestry. Mm-hmm. But I had never mm-hmm. noticed that. I had never uh, thought of that, but I think that is uh, actually That's really cool. Because it, yeah. it was a widow's whale and it wasn't kept, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dornish James says, given the scene regarding the Vale's food resources, having this chapter in A Dance with Dragons would have given an interesting contrast to John's issues with food stores at Castle Black. Yeah. And that would have fit really well with my suggestion of keeping it near the Kingbreaker chapter, Barrison's, which is his second to last chapter, which is absolutely right around that same time. It's um, really close to John's final chapter and thus should be pretty close to his second to last chapter, which is when a lot of that comes up. Good call, good call. Yeah, I really wonder where this one would have been placed. And uh, it seemed, But it does seem almost a certainty that it would, be near, would have been near the end of A Dance with Dragons. Uh, Brian Winslow, with our final question, says, I wonder if the grain stores in the Vale that Santa is aware of implies they will retreat to the Vale after Winterfell falls to the others. Oh, yeah, maybe if they have to leave the North instead of bringing food up there, they'll have a place they can go. Yeah, that's an alternative possibility that, that makes some sense. Do you guys f- have any strong opinion on whether you think winter will be beaten at Winterfell or farther south? Or is that something that's just too hard to predict at this point? Yeah, I, I was generally um, just the show did leave an impression on me in certain things. And, and that that was one of the things that I just thought made sense when I saw it like that. I, I know it's mentioned about Danny bathing the others in fire at the trident but I, I mean i thought about this and i thought that that you know if i said oh that was his um dreams dreams and stuff are not always so literal yeah mm. you, yeah, you know if danny's having a dream it might just be a Rhaegar reference it may if i said oh 
this is his Waterloo. It doesn't have to be at Waterloo, and it could could be in the same same vein. This is her trident. It doesn't have to literally be the trident. So in that case, you know that that was the one piece of evidence that really took us further south. Yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, I tend to. I think I agree with you. I think it's more likely to be Winterfell, but uh, where they do their. I mean, it kind of fits the name and all that. But I, I also have entertained the idea of Aaron Hall. Um, I, like you mentioned, that's related to the uh, the Danny Trident dream mm-hmm. thing. But hey, at one point George mm-hmm. thought Danny was going to go to Ashai, and he changed his mind. So, you know, at, uh, this could be one of those things that's uh, like you said. That since they're dreams, they're you know, we, and since it's early in the book, and George has changed a few things, then. We can't be uh, locking that in as if it's a sure thing or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, there's been one more question added. Matt Reese says, I'm roughly 30 minutes behind, but how do the mountain clans know Tyrion and Sansa were wed? Tyrion had them locked out of King's Landing after the Blackwater and before the marriage. Well, they, Tywin. Tywin, yeah. Tywin had them kicked out of King's Landing after the Blackwater and before the marriage. That's true. Now, they don't have to know they're married right away. They would just have to recognize Sansa from his time with Tyrion or her time with Tyrion. And then it could come up. She could maybe tell them that as a way to win them over or something. Mm-hmm. But that is a good point. Mm-hmm. That is a bit of a wrinkle in, uh, in that because mm-hmm. they would know who she is, but they wouldn't necessarily know she was married. But they might know she was married. It was, a, it was announced, you know, like news spread. It was. Uh, they could know. Mm-hmm. They just wouldn't have known about it. They like, talked about it in, um, you know, in that Arya chapter when she's with Sandor at the, when, they, when they kill Palver and the Tickler. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the subject of discussion that that Tyrion married Sansa. Oh yeah, he laughs about it. He's like, ah. Sansa ran away. Yeah. So news does get around. I mean, yeah. And that's not far from the entrance to the Vale, as we see, because the village that mm-hmm. Sandor helps them rebuild their wall at is, they say, a village eight miles from them was raided by the well-armed mountain clans. And that's mm-hmm. why they're building a wall <laughs> to keep out mm-hmm. those mountain clans. <laughs> so yes, All right, very interesting. Very interesting altogether there. Okay, that does it for our questions. So thank you very much, Radio Estros. You guys had some amazing takes. I know you've worked on this chapter a bit, so you've, you've got uh, your own versions of this that I would encourage everyone to go check out on your end to hear even more variety on it and probably some things you hadn't considered at all. So what is next immediately for you guys? What's your next uh, few weeks coming up with? You guys are doing some, uh, some uh, Ice and Fire Con stuff too or no? We yes, indeed. I'll uh, be doing virtual ice and fire con. I think I'm doing two panels with you. We've got uh, oh yeah, one on Friday, <laughs> which is escaping me. Friday is well, we have Quiplash oh. on Friday, but also something else. That one uh, about House of the Dragon. Oh yeah, House of the Dragon. Some show yeah. talk. Yeah. And um, but that, yes, Radio so. Westeros. They are going to be part of Quiplash. Cool. And then Quiplash, which we are very much looking forward to. And then the Saturday panel about small characters. We'll be there for that, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll be on the Quiplash and I'll be on the minor characters mm-hmm. panel. I'm not going to be at the the spin-off one, I don't think. So Okay, right on. So That's cool. And what then, about then um, we'll be back. your regular streams. stuff? Yeah. Yep, we'll be back with uh, streams on uh, Sam Tarley and Aaron Euron. Those accompany our uh, regular Ooh, episode that's out nice. right now. And I mentioned at the top of this episode that we're heading to Essos uh, for our next uh, Winds Winter Primer, which is the regular episode series that we're doing. So Slaver's Bay, which is uh, going to be Victorian and Tyrion. Nice. All right. So that'll be fun. 
Well, one other thing you all have participated in is our audio project for the Winds of Winter chapters. The next one that's coming out is Mercy. That will be out at some point in the near future. It's in the hands of our sound folks doing their excellent work. And I can't speak for them how long it will take. It'll happen when it happens. But Lady Gwen is the narrator for the Mercy chapter, and that is pretty awesome. So y'all can look forward to that, as well as a lot of other voices that you may or may not know. Some will be fun surprises. Some will be new to you, but that's going to be a lot of fun. We still need people to participate. We're working on them one at a time. A lot of you have submitted voices already, and you will be hearing from us when we get to the chapters that we think you your voices are right for. But as I said, there's still a lot of room for more. We haven't even put the second one out yet, so there's a lot of time to get involved. Join our Discord or our Facebook group for that. That is where most of the discussions are taking place. And you can email us your submissions to westroshistory at gmail.com. Just send us a clean recording and we'll fit you in, most likely. We, as we like to do, we finish with uh, episodes that we met. Oh, I forgot to mention. Happy belated birthday to Michael Klarfeld, Claradox.de, the man behind the maps in our intro video. What a great guy, great part of this fandom and too. great friend. <laughs> yeah, he's in the background of every one of your your every one of us has a has Lady a... Gwen and Yoke Boy. They have there's we see yeah. the known world, uh-huh. the Iron Island, and yeah. Essos. All yeah. all on this one screen. <laughs> represent. So, represent. Oh, and speaking of the voice project, Michael Clarfeld's voice is part is present in that as well. So a lot of you will hear Michael Clarfeld's voice for the first time. As is Lady Gwyn's. Yeah, that's right. But uh, you heard her voice a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her voice is a new you. It's excellent, but not new. <laughs> not new. I look forward to hearing some of you. So, yeah, that's going to be really cool. Um, but and- on that subject of the voice project, please submit your voices. You've been listening to every week of these Winds of Winter uh, chapters. You know what we're talking about, but we're recording our own audio play productions of the Winds of Winter chapters. We have released Victorian so far you can find it on patreon if you can't find it you can you know contact us um it is free it's on yeah. patreon but it's not, yeah. not to oh, join yeah. no yes. sign up or anything it's just that's just where we posted it one yeah. easy spot to download it from and we are releasing mercy next and currently we are trying to work on Tyrion, but people are not submitting their voices enough so please submit your voice <laughs> no, uh, need a few more voices in yeah there. we need some especially people with different accents because we're we're you know not in westeros even so yeah that's enough of my spiel but please don't disappoint me <laughs> <laughs> okay so the other episodes we mentioned um for uh that are relevant to this one in addition to the radio westeros episodes that were relevant we mentioned our prior version of this chapter in 2015 and that is a lot of different stuff in there. There's a little bit of overlap, like I said, but not too much. There's a lot of different topics, things that Littlefinger doesn't know about, things that are going on in the world that maybe he does know about that's pretending not to know, etc. Um, also, we mentioned our House Royce episode. That's pretty relevant to all this Vale stuff and is just a fun deep dive into their history. Like we said, next week, no Ral Arboretus, but we'll see a lot of you at the Virtual Ice and Fire Con. The week after, we're doing Theon 1, and our guest is Jason Concepcion, uh, formerly of The Ringer, and now he's doing a whole bunch of new projects, and we'll talk about those. Well, we'll let him tell you about those. Some of you are already quite aware of them, but we'll uh, we'll hold off on that for now. And uh, let's say thanks to everybody else. Thank you to people who came live and watched and submitted questions, particularly good questions today. 
thanks to those of y'all who submitted questions in advance. Also very good questions. Um, some of y'all asked questions that we had already planned to answer. So uh, if your name wasn't mentioned, that's because of that. But we do appreciate the questions regardless. Thanks to Ashea for doing so much all at once. Like cracking many arms, <laughs> handling it all at once. Thank you to the History of Westeros Mods on Facebook for managing things in that corner of, of, of the world, as well to our contributors on Flick and Slack and Discord. Thanks again to Michael Clarfeld. Happy birthday again, Michael. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reredis music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular History of Westeros music. Thanks to our engineer for sound quality. Thanks to our patrons for the financial support that without it, we wouldn't be here. If you're interested in joining us on Patreon, head over to historyofwesteros.com or patreon.com slash historyofwesteros where you can find the level and pledge level uh, pledge support that is the right fit for you. We give you back things like bonus episodes. And of course, while you're there, grab that Victorian episode for free. Um, and the future episodes will maybe be posted by the, t- or uh, chapters rather, will be posted by the time you hear this if you're hearing it uh, after getting published. Also, thanks to um, everybody else who has been involved. And make sure to check out Here Be Dragons. They're getting started in just a few minutes here. Or if you're hearing this after the fact, head over to YouTube and check out the replay for their coverage of Clone Wars and many other great things. And until next time, Valar Reredis. <laughs> <laughs>